Here we are. Welcome, everybody, back to uh, the Marvelous Demystifiers. We ride again. And already out the gate, a nice tip, super chat from Kyle at Typical New Herbs. He says he uses his neighbor's sign-in for these Disney Plus shows. So $10 to me instead of to them. <laughs> I'll take it. That's good. So, guys, we have an action-packed episode tonight. Joining us for the first time to demystify some Marvel is Thomas Gorenz, a.k.a. Paranoid American. Woo! What up, y'all? What up, y'all? Yeah, I got some intro music, but I didn't send it to you, but I'll have to for the next big <laughs> intro. Yeah, man. Good to have What's you on board. On, yeah, I love both of you guys and Slick, where we've collaborated before in the past, so I already know this is going to go off the rails immediately, and I love every minute of it. I apologize in advance that I'm glistening with sweat. It's... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's warm. It's the summer. I just want everyone to look at my shininess. Anyway, is that is that GQ filter? (laughs) (laughs) This is why we wanted you on the team. So we're talking tonight about Secret Invasion. Probably not a more timely Marvel thing in terms of matching up what's coming out in supposed fiction with the mainstream media, supposed reality. (laughs) it's also maybe the most potentially the most Kabbalistic in a sneaky way of the Marvel stuff we've watched so far either that or Mm. which stuff went over our head I don't know but we have so much to dig into we're just going to cover episode one there's three out currently so if you want to make sure that you aren't spoiled maybe pause this and go watch episode one if you've not seen it you're not planning on watching it that's okay too you're still going to get a really great look at how to spot secret encoded messages and programming some of it not very secret at all so gabriel how you been man it's how long since you've been on a show with me maybe three weeks it's been a while man yeah it's been wonderful i got my kiddo with me spending some nice summer summer vacation together took her out to the uh, michigan dunes the other day got to play with her in the ocean well in the splashing waves of lake michigan uh, telling her all the stories of the Michigan Triangle and the missing ships. And uh, yeah, yeah. Nice. Hey, Rachel, good to see you. Yeah, it's great to be back, everybody. Big love, big hugs, everybody. Nice. Hey, Jen. <laughs> yeah, man. Stoked to demystify again, man. This is a good one. Yeah, we probably shouldn't really waste time. There's, I've got 63 slides. <laughs> So it's not. And about halfway through, I started really like being more selective. But you know how it is. The first scene is always the juiciest, that initiation moment. Mm -hmm. So we'll go in a pretty significant blow by blow at the beginning. And then as the episode progresses, it gets more action-y and the action is less symbolic, typically. So here we go. We're talking about uh, Secret Invasion based on the... I don't know. When did this come out in the comics, Thomas? I, I feel like this was a uh, secret invasion as a title was a Brian Michael Bendis arc, maybe in the, the aughts. Correct. And then also the main focus, despite the name kind of focuses on these Krill characters, these, these uh, reptilian like shape-shifting characters. And those ones go back even further into just sort of like a, a random science fiction, almost like a treehouse of horrors style comic. I think it was, it might have even been like 30s or 40s or something. Uh, it might have been 50s, but it was, it was kind of laid on. It was a one off story. And the, the gag of the story was that 
the these aliens come to the planet Earth and they're trying to you know convince this guy to basically um, become like a traitor and they finally offer him the most beautiful woman in the universe. But what they don't tell him is that the most beautiful woman is also a krill. So when she shows up, you know, she's like a horrible krill monster and then the end. And then I think they made another reappearance in like a 1950s or 60s silver surfer uh, episode where again, they were just kind of like this one-off alien race, but over time they've kind of like developed this big, thing and i really do believe that they kind of use that in secret invasion and they bring in these krill because it's it's a very powerful archetype and we can see it replay a bunch of times so i think when you're saying krill you might be referring to the kree in the marvel universe and then these are the scrolls am i getting mixed up here maybe you're right well there there's also scrolls uh and then there's a whole bunch of uh, scrolls i don't know if they're the exact same race as the uh the i get maybe it's the kree or the creole i don't know how to, to pronounce it in the 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 exact language but it's it basically started as like this one off joke uh, that was loosely based on older stories from the 30s from like old science fiction magazines. But it's this you can follow a very specific thread from where it goes from these science fiction novels into this science fiction series from Stan Lee. And I think it was even Dit- uh, Ditka that did the artwork for it. It was like a 30, 35 page comic. And then that evolves into like the V series. It evolves into a whole bunch of different reptilian series. I mean, David Icke, I'm basically saying David Icke got his reptilians from this thread, this green, you know, lizard colored thread that starts way back in the 1930s at the very latest. Oh, man, I feel like just talking about reptilians would fill an hour. (laughs) Shapeshifters and reptilians. Maybe before we get into the blow by blow. So how I often like to do it here, Thomas, is I've got a slideshow of screenshots from the film or the the episode, and we'll just kind of mosey through the plot and cover off some of the symbolism that's hiding in plain sight. But before that, you know, I got to ask you guys, I'll start with you, Gabriel. Do you believe in reptilians? If yes, what are they or what form? And if no, why don't you buy it? Man. Uh, I think they did. I don't buy it in its most literal sensationalized form. Oh, they got him. Okay, here's back. Am I, am I good? <laughs> well, they believe okay. in you. They just kicked you out. Okay, nice. Yeah, um, just in its most uh, simplified derivative, if you boil it down to the psychological reptilian brain, uh, the the theory is still substantiate substantiates itself enough for me that I do know that our reptil reptilian. Uh, instinctive mind is what rules the realm, is what makes the world go round. And the, the R fact, complex. Yes. The, brain. Yep. The fact that they've harnessed the R complex uh, so many hundreds of years ago, uh, I do believe that the reptilian mind is what makes the realm go round. So, strictly from a scientific lens, I think, yeah, lizard the world go round. And I I kind of agree with that in a sense. And also, this is a weird one, but if you imagine the reptilian brain that Gabe's talking about, that's almost like at the core. And then like another brain kind of develops on top of that. And then another brain develops on top of that. So it almost speaks as if this reptilian brain 
uh, if you were to just go and, you know, create life in some other galaxy somewhere, that might be also the first thing that forms. And if they don't follow the exact same path, where like the next layer and the next layer form, there might potentially be, you know, everything has a reptilian brain maybe out there that's organic. And then they just evolve in different ways for the different layers that kind of plop on top. So in that case, there might be some like very real legitimacy to the whole reptile slash fish people thing at like a like a genetic level so i I believe in that although i don't believe in in the like zap me down and like using space lasers reptilians that can like transform but one of david ike's most recent examples where it's almost these like energy fields that can shift in and out of uh our dimension because they're almost like a four dimension or five dimensional creature you know like donald trump or something and can just shift and play 5d chess and i feel like that might be the closest way that i might agree that okay yeah there's shape-shifting reptilian aliens if we classify them as like whatever demons or interdimensional shape-shifters might be if you want to say that's a reptilian i'd be like okay there's there's more credit to that okay so here's my take i don't buy physical green men from another planet I don't necessarily, I don't find it likely that there are reptilian humanoids, physically speaking, on this world. However, in the eons of eternal existence that I do ascribe to, because <laughs> I, I don't really believe in a beginning or an end to existence. I see it more as just like an eternal cycle. And, you know, there's things like, your Bigfoot. I've I've heard of all kinds of humanoid sightings like kangaroo men, <laughs> etc. So to me, it's not completely crazy to imagine that maybe there were a different kind of men on the planet or on the world before this type of men was here, us. And if that's the case, if there ever were more reptilian type men, scaly men, whatever, they're you know, their spiritual essence could potentially still exist here tied to this realm if they follow and operate by the same rules that we do, which is that if you pass away and you don't go into the light and move on into your next, you know, metempsychosis, next existence, you can roam this realm as a hungry ghost or even, you know, I think that there are spirit entities that have the ability to siphon and gather essence or power or life force to themselves and become more and more capable of some kind of agency in the world. And so if there were, so there's a lot of ifs here, but maybe there were reptile men, maybe they all died out. Maybe some of them stuck around as disincarnate spirits. And then, you know, for the shape-shifting part of it, the shamanic description of shape-shifting is typically not that the person wears the body of another being that they change their body into that being, but instead a type of projecting of consciousness into another body. And, you know, that doesn't sound that outrageous to me that uh, a more powerful mind or will could sort of jump in the driver's seat of a body that has a less powerful will. So all that, you know, in the mix, maybe there are reptilian spirit entities and maybe they have the power to, whether it's it requires some kind of consent or just a weak-minded individual or both are possible. Maybe there's a shape-shifting going on in terms of them taking over the bodies of human beings, but not actually like one body becoming another body. That's sort of where I'm at with it all. 
if you take the scales away, you've kind of just described an influencer, like a really popular influencer, right? They project like their own consciousness and their own version of reality onto all these, you know, weaker minded people that then are like, that's my reality. That's the world that I live in, even though it doesn't exist. Right. And I have, I know a lot of people with firsthand accounts while on psychedelics running into reptilian beings, you know, required that kind of expanded spiritual vision, but people, I trust their trip reports, if you will. (laughs) So that's not something physical or provable, but there's got (laughs) influencers definitely nails it by the way. That's hilarious. So, okay. Now that we've got our, our stances on reptilians all laid out, (laughs) I feel like that's important that we have that groundwork exploration done. Um, Gabe, what what are your preliminary thoughts on this first episode of Secret Invasion? Uh, well, one thing that's really fascinating is the, um, you know, the xenophobia and all the race baiting and all the trigger, uh, the classic triggers uh, that uh, we see in a lot of the Marvel, but it seems to be kicked off just in time for like, you know, another migrant. Uh, invasion from the south you know seasonally speaking it's like it had to be this time of the year this year that they play that this film comes out you know it's like so politically seasonal it just it never ceases to amaze me uh so that comes to mind you know the fact that the characters you know their password to get into the rebel base is like you know what do you want is to be comfortable in my own skin you know, it's very, very, very uh, triggering for a lot of people, uh, quite by design. So uh, that's going to be on my radar. Uh, and also, of course, the the disclosure, the alien disclosure thing. You know, it's like they're just pulling out all the stops on all the triggers uh, of all time, uh, which kind of plays it. Ultimately, my theory is that... Uh, uh, so many of us are aware that the UFO and the project blue beam is coming that they're just, it's almost like this is our, um, our, this is our vaccination. This is our desensitization to f- potential future psychological operations. And they're just getting it all out of the, it's like a, a cabin in the woods. They're showing us all the tricks in the bag all at once. Uh, so we can all say, Nope, it's all bullshit. Uh, and I think ultimately down the line uh, to increase our sense of skepticism uh, for the sake of a good uh, psychological immune system. <laughs> it's, it's funny that you use uh, vaccination as an example here, because legitimately the last time that I had to go to Walgreens or CVS to go and, you know, pick something up, they had free Avengers Marvel comic books that were all promoting the vaccine. And it was all about how like the doctors and the pharmacists and the teachers that are all helping you get, you know, injected that they're the, the true heroes and they're the real superheroes. Um, but, and it, and it also was like within the whole Marvel sort of canon, like they, they, un- they revealed like a technology that you would only know about if you had read some like esoteric version of Hulk. So it was inside the Marvel universe, but it's also just a completely free Pfizer funded uh, comic book that you can just pick up anywhere. And man, what a great 11 too. 
Well, they do now 11. And you know where else they did that is where the, the military used to just drop uh, comic books that were just full of propaganda on villages and like where places, you know, they were trying to kind of like help overthrow. And that's actually what kind of inspired a lot of this comic book medium was how effective that was at getting especially the youth to understand these like incredibly abstract and high level concepts that you can't do necessarily just through words, but all of a sudden you pair that with pictures and bam, you can convey, you know, here's the hermetic principle illustrated all of a sudden. Uh, so I don't know. I think there's, there's a big aspect to that too. And then I also think, and we're, we're already doing spoiler alerts for the, the first episode. Oh so, yeah. This is full spoiler. No, so at the, hard. at the very end of the first episode, um, they basically reveal that this, I'm not going to give a, a full, you know, breakdown spoiler, but they reveal that a very important character all along was one of these reptilian shapeshifters. And what they do with planting that little nugget at the end of the first uh, episode, one is they make a very convenient writer's um, sort of mechanic where like anything can happen now, but they also are letting you know that as a viewer that, Hey, like no matter who you're seeing right now, even as you're looking at Samuel L. Jackson, don't be surprised if we just reveal in a random episode, Oh, by the way, he was a shapeshifter. So it seeds this feeling of kind of like distrust and surreal, like simulation kind of theory on the show right from the very get-go so you can kind of tell that the story is going to get wild and they're probably going to pull some some crazy punches good stuff guys all right well let's jump in and start the the play-by-play here we go uh for actually let me put up this screen this is the it's very important right that we get the (laughs) first shot is always so important so first things first, Moscow, present day, which means 6-21-2023, the solstice in June. That's important. I'll come back later. Just wanted to make sure that's clear. So what we'll do as I'm going through this and kind of reading from my notes, <laughs> please feel free to interrupt or jump in or have me pause on a screen. And uh, otherwise, I'll just kind of try to keep the train going. Yeah, I'll just I'll just inject banter from the peanut gallery here and there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or just full on take the take the floor. All good. <laughs> you know, chance. The last time we saw present day was the exact same font from the uh, from Captain America uh, Part Three that we did last the last time on the last Demystifiers, and it was right before the scene where they were basically uh, recapping all the dimensions of the JFK assassination. And it was, the, you know, it was WandaVision and she's stirring her, her coffee cup and they flash that present day on the screen as they're doing the Nescafe commercial, literally tapping the coffee cup, just like the Nescafe commercial. So I just wanted to point that out, that there is a not just a common theme, but they're using the exact same font again. And they're presenting their hand, present yod. They're showing their hand. Yeah, they can't help themselves. There's a lot of tipping of the yod. <laughs> okay, so first of all, th- this character we're seeing, the first uh, you know character in the show, his name is Ross. And it seems innocuous, right? His name is Ross. No big deal. But when we see some of the other ways that this name ties into themes of this show, the name Ross is not an accident. <laughs> And it kind of makes me wonder what, you know, how the theme 
of wisdom or the head of the, the head of society, the wisdom or the wise leaders. Cause that's what Ross means. R A S Ross, like a Rastafari <laughs> comes from the, uh, the Etruscan Rasena. Yeah, Dylan's in the chat. He'll probably fill us in more, but that's yeah. important. Okay. Because this idea of the head and of wisdom is repeated throughout the show. Not to mention that I feel like um, once we find out a little later on in the scene that this is a scroll and he's a he's an evil. Even the word scroll sounds like skull, which is a head. <laughs> you know, the, the talking heads that give wisdom from alchemical lore and, and even regular religious mythology like Odin with Mimir's head. So revealing right away, you know, in terms of if this show has got some revelation of the method going on, which I think it does that the cult of wisdom is the culprit behind all the type of schemes and scams you see going on in this episode. So, well, well, I would almost uh, reword it the way that I've, I've come to understand it is it's not necessarily a cult of wisdom or like Illuminati or um, revolutionary thinkers, but I think it's, it more represents intelligence agencies, uh, specifically sort Bingo. of clandestine intelligence agencies. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> intelligence agencies that learned a lot of the way that they operate also from the protocols of secret societies. You know, they're like a, they're like a, I wouldn't even say pseudo secret society. There's no doubt that there are. Well, it's, are. it's just the corporate version. It's the, it's the version that has to report to the IR. Well, you know, whatever, some version of the IRS or have some sort of accountability and hierarchy that outlives that, it, you know, it's current people that are inside of it. There you go. Uh, then I just think it's interesting to see this guy going through some underground tunnels. I may have been a little overly zealous with screen captures from the first scene, but <laughs> <laughs> yellow, there's the yellow brick road. Yeah. 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 The underground. Yeah. And you know, uh, it may had me thinking about the JFK assassination because of the, there is that theory that one of the, that the shots came from the, from the gutter. Yep. You know, from down below. Yeah, storm drain, right? That's it, storm drain. We all float down here. So there's a voiceover happening as we see this Ross character. And I'm just going to read, this is maybe not exactly a direct quote, kind of a paraphrase, but we hear this character, Press God. Strange name. <laughs> <laughs> probably something in it in it but i didn't think about it too much could it he be says, prescott and they just like misspelled it for the clack captioning could be but you know that's just demonst demonstrative of how the d and t are interchangeable letters 100 percent interchangeable good point you know and <laughs> even if uh i think that you can drop the first letter off of a lot of names that you read in mythology and occult history like ptolemy for example drop the p it's ptolemy you know you don't say the p so if we were looking at this as type of uh priest character symbolically a priest character you might be able to drop the p off of his name and just see what you get and then you get Ress, which is the same as ross 
And then you get cod, which with the G to GC interchange is God. So it's right there kind of hiding in this name, Prescott, God of wisdom. <laughs> so it's there. I mean, it's, it's anecdotal, right? But it's there. And then his, his uh, voiceover in this party says, information, imagine a world, imagine if you will, a world where information can't be trusted. The news says one thing, internet says another. Society starts to fray. <laughs> All we can turn to are the people we care about. But what if, no, he's got a really deep voice. So, but what if those people aren't, weren't who we thought they were? <laughs> What if the ones closest to us, the ones we've trusted our whole lives, were something else entirely? What if they weren't even human? (laughs) I mean, but do they love you? (laughs) Do they care for you when you're sick? Isn't that all that matters? It's a very important monologue, though, because it's setting us up to reveal the post-truth world. Like you just mentioned, Thomas, any character at any time could be someone else. It's all very simulation-y. The text that you've got in this one screenshot, I think, summarizes the best. Imagine a world where information can't be trusted. And uh, it's funny that it says imagine. It's like how much, what do we need to imagine beyond what we've kind of got right now where information can't be trusted? Yeah. How much, how much worse is it really going to get? And to answer my own rhetorical question, I feel like we are just in the baby years. We are like, you know, we just crawled out of the swamp. We dive in. (laughs) Yeah, dude. We're on the diving board taking a deep breath. (laughs) We haven't even dipped our toe in to to check the temperature. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. And then the other thing about this opening monologue is in context to the whole scene, it's throwing out the, you know, it's throwing out the green light to the normies who watch this to distrust the conspiracy theorists in their life and dehumanize them, as we saw a lot of during the cooties thing. But you could also watch it in reverse and then be like, if I'm a conspiracy theorist, these are all the normies and they're the ones that are going to be the rat or just they're literally the reptilians like the lady on the plane. Right. Like that guy is actually a real reptilian. Well, yeah, that's a good point. It goes both ways, Thomas. Good point. Goes both ways. Um, and I'm probably intentionally so. You know, they know the amount of people interested in conspiratorial information is rising. And they know this little speech isn't going to turn somebody off who's already lifted up enough rocks and seen what's under them to distrust everything mainstream forever. You know, <laughs> You know, how many times do you realize... Do you, does it take when you realize someone's lied to you, how many lies before you're just like, all right, it's all lies. I don't trust this. I'll never trust it again. But, but do they care for you when you're sick <laughs> in a divide and conquer sense? It's very effective for, you know, both sides of the divide to hear the speech and be like the normies. They're not even human. The conspiracy theorists, they're not even human. And, and one other quick thing on this too, I find this really fascinating, but when I mentioned that this is just a repeating of this very strong, same archetype again, like even the series V from the eighties that was then remade in like the two thousands, I think, which is about reptilian shapeshifter aliens that come to earth and pretend that they're uh, here for our benefit. And then it, it turns out that they're not big surprise, but even that itself was actually based on an old story by um, Sinclair Lewis called it can't happen here. And that 
uh, book, It Can't Happen Here, had nothing to do with aliens or reptilians or anything. It was actually about uh, like like a, a the German Nazi party. What if that had come to rise in the United States where it's so subtle? It's like that boiling a frog sort of syndrome where it happens so subtly and people get divided over this long period of time. And and they just kind of made it a way more obvious in the V series where, OK, we can't really say that different friends and workers have different political parties. Now they're literally different you know, aliens or different species. One of them is just wearing the other one's skin, but that's the story that they're really trying to seed. And it's that, you know, that the othering of people, just like, you know, Germany did, it's the othering of people. And in this case, it's, you know, more, it's just as blatant as V ever was basically. Yeah, man, the othering it's required for it. Empire requires it any form of empire. So then we see some shots of, you know, the crazy classic, crazy conspiracy bulletin board. (laughs) You got to have it. You got to have it. Um, They feel so inefficient, though, with like with a computer now, you know, wouldn't you just put all this in some kind of software? I don't know. It would take a while to to do all the string and the yarn and the thumbtacks and. What if you add like a new face? You got to like rearrange all the pictures and all the thumbtacks every time you add something new to it. <laughs> they never show that part, though. <laughs> well, we now see, though, the key buzzword here, mass shooting. <laughs> Gabe, you want to jump in? Yeah. Oh, I just love this scene because it reminds me of my dry erase board so much. <laughs> does your dre erase word also say mass shooting on the top <laughs> no but i'm gonna i'm gonna turn my drive back of my dry erase board into a cork board just so i can have something that looks like this <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have actual red string then you haven't hit peak conspiracy theorist yet that's right that's right <laughs> i'm saving up <laughs> i mean Need I say more? This is basically the Charlie from It's Always Sunny meme. Totally. Even the time where this originated. I, I assume this came from like the JFK movie um, by Oliver Stone, was it? But I don't know. I don't know where I, I'm just interested where like where this original meme came from. Like who was the first guy mm-hmm. to be going out of his mind with a big, you know, board in front of him in red string? It had to come from somewhere. Yeah. I wonder uh it makes me think of the uh, oh, there's an investigator on the JFK case from New Orleans. I forget his name, but he had a very unique style of investigation. Uh, and I and you think it had to do with maps. Like he was the first guy to actually include people's uh, living proximity into into their uh, profile. But yeah, this guy, his name was Prescott, right? Prescott. Yes, yeah, so it's it's uh, you know we got Prescott Bush, which is a a quintessential like uh, conspiracy theorist entry entry fee is like don't you know what about Prescott Bush? <laughs> and then at some point <clears throat> he ends up uh, he I think he sees through. Uh, Ross's disguise. I think because of something Ross says is when he realizes that Ross is not Ross before he pounces on him. 
Uh, yeah, he, I think it's the reaction. You know, he doesn't. He seems. Well, e- either way, it's a it's intense point. But I wanted to point yeah. out too that this chaos is. He's he's talking about five global terrorist attacks in the past yeah. year, claimed by different groups. This is his words. It's, but it, it, you know, the fact that it's claimed by five different groups is what they want you to think. It's all actually the same group. Exactly. I, I and, couldn't help but notice too. Chaos is five letters. I feel like that's a synchronicity here. Yeah, that, that, that I think there's probably something to that. And then in terms of it's all actually the same group, I personally think that's how the intelligence agencies operate. I don't think that the countries are really as at odds with each other as they seem in you know the media. Mm-hmm. I think in some somewhere these quote unquote terrorist groups are conjoined at the head. Maybe not they're compartmentalized, right? That's military one oh one. But <laughs> I think this to me is like a you know, this order out of chaos description is to me classic just classic conspiracy theory. I I could see it in a few different contexts. I feel like at its most organized um, or cohesive, it would almost be like like a big mafia family thing where anytime another bigger family can come and take over, but they essentially establish some sort of standards and rules. Uh, but I think it's it probably it's a little mafia. bit messy. It's probably like way messier uh, than the mafia. But I, I think that shows like this and just the general concept of having one big boogeyman, like this global Illuminati. I actually think that compartmentalization is what Lots of, you know, if, if there were, this is going to sound paradoxical, but if there were an Illuminati, they would prefer to kind of have everyone focused in one direction uh, because it's way more convenient, just like monotheism, right? It's, it's like the ver, it's like a scapegoating version of monotheism where you just assume this is always the fault of this particular way of thinking or group. And if you can get everyone to buy into to like a visual image of here's the thing that you should be putting all your hate and distrust towards and blame. That just feels like it makes people so much more easy to manipulate, you know, the compartmentalization of it. Oh, uh, you make a good point too. the mafia nature of the actual power structures of the world. I mean, government is pretty obviously mafia, <laughs> <laughs> but they could it's also fine. point to the mafia and be like, oh, look how bad those guys are. And then meanwhile, they're doing like 10 times the job just with nicer shirts and, you know, less accents. <laughs> so they're not it's not so much like there's a, a top they, if you will. You know, you make a good point about it's more conducive to the whole doing business to have everyone point like pointing the finger at one scapegoat. I feel like that's what the Jews are there for largely, you know, for conspiracy culture, not saying that there isn't a, a there there when it comes to the tiny hat culture. But it, my point being really, it's probably like you say uh, more of a mafia style, multiple families, that are working together to do business of a certain kind. And so they have mutually beneficial goals. I think that's probably more true to life rather than there being like one God emperor secret master. Okay. We already looked at the Charlie meme. 
<laughs> so here, though, he mentions Argentina attacks Colombia. Colombia attacks the Philippines. Talking about this chaos. So, you know, you heard it here first, guys. If uh, Colombia attacks the Philippines, <laughs> you know Disney was in on it. And we should point out, though, the time of this show coming out does really coincide with a lot of hyped up Russia stuff. We'll we'll get to that as we go. And the blue beam, of course. And the blue beam. Yeah. There's Although that's never gone away, right? There's always been at least every five to ten years, there's always a huge blue beam alien movie to just keep you prepared, keep you on your toes. All ever since you know, War of the Worlds probably. So here he said he's saying a violent chain reaction consuming the globe. Uh, he's already <laughs> lying to you. <laughs> he says, do you realize the entire world is at war? So I feel like this is, um, you know, an, an obvious nod to the way World War One actually happened or, you know, publicly happened. The entangling alliances, which is what all the cable news talking heads want us to be afraid of happening with NATO and the Ukraine and probably not even supposed to say the word Ukraine. Oh, well. We are on YouTube. It's definitely on the list. But you have to, you have to, you have to just be, you know, like worshiping them, and then they'll let it through. And then this line, he says to Agent Ross, "There is an architect to that tension, Agent Ross." I feel like that's basically, you know, if you just remove or if you just change the emphasis, there is an architect to that tension. Agent Ross, <laughs> not like talking mm-hmm. to Agent Ross, but saying the agents of, you know, the intelligence, <laughs> Ross, the agents of wisdom, intelligence agents are the architects of the tension of the entangling, chaotic uh, world at war alliance situation. <laughs> uh, we should just be, Dylan says, we should just be promoting Ukraine and then we'll get more views. He's not wrong. I literally read the the updated uh, YouTube requirements today and it has like a special section on there that uh, if you say anything, you know, that's like derogatory or just not supportive, then it'll get dinged. But if you're supportive of it, then it doesn't get dinged and it probably does give you a little boost. So go Ukraine, go Ukraine. We're supposed to support war. Okay. <laughs> Wow, that's go Lockheed, go Lockheed Martin, me. go Ukraine, go go all of you guys. <laughs> this is all parody anyway. None of this in, counts. in Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it started thirty years ago when the scrolls found Earth. Bum bum bum. So, of course, you know, we got to go back and just consider what's 30 years ago, right? If they're giving us 30 years ago. Now, this has backstory in the Captain Marvel movie. Not really worth watching, but it's where the scrolls get introduced. So 30 years ago on the dot on the equi- or uh, solstice, June 21st, 1993. Uh <laughs> That's when the NASA Endeavor shuttle supposedly, allegedly, did the first flight of SpaceHab, which is a wow. supposed pressurized laboratory 
in orbit. Wow, very interesting. Yeah. Nice, yeah, nice dig. Well, that but, really fits the theme of Nick Fury being on a space station. Right, right. It does. Uh, it also kind of fits in with the nostalgia spell that we've been talking about. You know, that like uh, fashion. It's 30 years back. It targets the 30 years back, which puts everybody's mind in a position to be anticipating uh, another 9-11. You know, if we're constantly being sent back in a dreamy state to 30 years ago, we're also being constantly set up to be uh, have a sense that something big is on the horizon. Another 9-11 on the on the way. Nice. Well, while I was looking into June 21st, 1993, apparently on January 1st, 1970 is where they began the Unix epoch counting, which is basically where, like, I don't know, this is for computers or something. They started counting time in seconds, individual seconds since 1-1-1970. So... It's been 205,728 hours between 1-1-1970 and 6-21-1993. And according to the internet, if we named this day after a polygon, it will be called Hecta Hepta Conta Digon Day. Hecta Hepta. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Just thought that was fun. There's kind of no point to that. But going back to the theme of 30 years ago, though, very important to remember as well that it's not exactly 30 years ago, but it's near 30 years ago that the 1991 Soviet coup attempt, also known as the August coup, a failed attempt by hardliners of the Soviet Union Communist Party to forcibly seize control from Gorbachev. This essentially led to the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? The USSR falls. So, the entire story arc of who Russia is to the world in its current form began 30 years ago, which is, I think, highly relevant to the plot of this show. I don't think it's an accident that, it, oh, it was 30 years ago. I can't remember what I was doing 30 years ago. Was that 90s? <laughs> is it? We're talking, yeah, early 90s, right? I was dressing up like the Red Ranger. <laughs> I was four. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely peak n- nostalgia era, and I think yeah. that. I mean, since this is Marvel too, it's it's hard to ignore the fact that Marvel is just based on nostalgia. What the what Marvel's doing now is this thirty year cycle because thirty years is essentially a generation, right? So within thirty years, it's time to make all the old things new again, and vice versa. So now I'm gonna take. The things that I was doing as a kid, you know, Power Rangers, watch, you know, the, the Power Ranger revival is probably going to be on the tail end of this in the next five to 10 years, where all of a sudden there's like an adult Power Range movie that you're going to bring your kids to and get them kind of indoctrinated into the same way that Star Wars works, the same way that Sesame Street works, like all of these things. Why would you not perpetuate this legacy if you were these corporate people? So in this particular instance, we're talking about Marvel, which you're already watching for nostalgic reasons. And now they're putting you back into the 90s, which is like the peak Marvel nostalgia time period. 
So, I mean, I, I think that there's also just like a keep getting, you know, you're deeper and deeper into the trance. Like there's that aspect to it right now. Right. Like in, in nostalgia. Not to mention, if you target the 30 year window, you're getting people's prime, you know, their prime productivity loosed from them by however much they decided to spend on entertainment. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, <clears throat> so theoretically, we would be landing right around 93, which puts it right around the, you know, the first World Trade Center, puts it around uh, Waco. You know, when uh, uh, McVeigh was getting trained up and also um, 93 is a, you know, thelemic number. Um, mm. And I think there's a 193 is comes into the weave here in a second. Which is pretty, yeah, pretty significant. Uh, 93 is also when um, I'm tra- uh, that's when the UFC was kind of kicking off and it's uh, in its earliest uh, success, success successes. It was seeded in 93. Well, you're just catering to that rock fin crowd. Now let's, let's keep it going. <laughs> I forgot to add that. If you remember everyone listening, if you saw our talk on multiverse of madness, the Dr. Strange movie, mm-hmm. the Illuminati <laughs> Features in that film, the Illuminati in the Marvel universe, you know, the secret organization of Professor X and Iron Man and Mr. Fantastic and whoever, whoever else was created uh, to secretly confront the scrolls. So, you know, the Illuminati and scroll connection has always been <laughs> in the mix. The, the reptilians sure. working against the, the Illuminati. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, then we get the reveal that Nick Fury, he's on Saber, which is a space station. We've never been given what the acronym Saber stands for, the space station that he's on. In the comics, it's called SWORD, which it means Sentient Weapon Observation and Response Division. Sometimes it's Secret World. Or sentient world observation and response division. Uh, so don't know what the acronym is. Sentient weapon is an interesting idea, but I can't help but notice that it's basically he's old Saint Nick at the top of the world. You know when he's up there on saber. <laughs> totally. Uh, that also uh, that kind of triggers uh, the what is it the Black Knight satellite. Uh, which is means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Oh, nice! Illuminati cards were in '93. Nice, okay. um, but uh, the Black Knight satellite has uh, kind of brought up a few ideas on my radar along my path. Uh, but one thing this is really obscure is uh, Psalms 91. Psalms 91 talks about. Uh, this this god figure who has prepared a tower for the, his acolytes or the, his followers, the faithful ones, uh, or some pla- in some places it's he has uh, built a uh, a palace, a, a place for us in the afterlife, basically. But uh, the name of the god in, in its original uh, language was Elion. The god's name is Elion. And it's not in some translations they cho- they translate it to you know the lion, 
You know, he is like a lion, but the name is Elion. It's basically Elon. And so uh, I took a clip of that uh, Psalms 91 and I put it next to the Black Knight satellite next to Thoth Tehuti, who is like St. Nick, keeping a list and checking it twice and making sure if you're naughty or nice, see if you're going to get into heaven. And then I put that uh, the quote of uh, Psalms with Elon basically having a, it comes across as Elon has a satellite in heaven for all the good people to ascend into his, into his promised land. Only one? I guess there's only going to be a few people in heaven. Satellite. That's the, that's the trick is that you actually have to get rich enough to own your own satellite. And that's how you get into heaven. And that's what they want to keep us from knowing. Wait, wait a second. Does the Black Knight satellite look a lot like that submarine? Would you turn it backwards? <laughs> oh, the, the Shamir? <laughs> oh, man. Don't, don't give it away, Gabe. That's more of episode three thing. The submarine. <laughs> submarine does prominently play out in the plot of this series. You know, coinciding with the exact same time that the big Ocean Gate submarine ritual happened. That's going to be the joke that just gives all year. <laughs> I grabbed this screenshot to show the deck of cards laid out in a solitaire formation mm-hmm. here. Yeah, man. Indicative of how the conspiracy theorist is meant to be isolated there. I mean, I'm sure we all can relate to that. <laughs> right. And, and like, uh, how many, how many conspiracy theorists did they, uh, did they supplement with the lockdowns? You know what I mean? It's like a lot of people who probably weren't that, that kind of personality or they are now. It could have, who knows, maybe the whole Coke and Pepsi red versus blue thing was just falling off and they needed a different type of divide to conquer through. Right. Right. Seems to I, be. I feel like too on those cards, you can also make the connection of the conspiracy theorists and people that would like consult the tarot, right? Because what else would, what else are playing cards other than the original tarot decks? And and did you notice uh, were there any Trump cards in that uh, screenshot, or was it all? It's uh, too hard cards? to make out. That's about all you get to see it, unless I missed it. So we don't see what cards are actually there. Do you have some kind of AI that can do it for us, Thomas? Uh, maybe, but can you trust it? <laughs> we're uh, we're doing great, guys. We're 53 minutes in. We're on the first scene. <laughs> this is how it normally goes. But uh, then that Prescott guy gets killed. We don't actually see who kills him. I guess it may have been this Ross character. Uh, he goes through a rooftop chase scene, jumping on roofs. It's very The Matrix, you know, jumping from roof to roof. And then he dies by falling off a roof in a classic CIA assisted suicide. R.I.P. Frank Olson. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm right about that, right? Isn't that a thing? Like the people falling off balconies and out of windows and like Eric Clapton and F- falling out of bulletproof, like double paned glass windows that aren't even meant to be opened. Yeah. It happens all the time, but only <laughs> if you're around a CIA agent, it's a, it's the weirdest thing, dude. <laughs> and you know that uh also that jumping from one rooftop to the next is like a kind of a summer solstice J- jumping across that chasm the three days of sus- in suspension 
So then we get the opening credits. I only grabbed one screenshot from it, but you know, I could kind of scan through it. <sighs> Thomas, what do you think, man? This is very obviously AI generated. Yeah, I- I'm a fan, although I honestly felt like they could have done a lot better. Like if you gave me whatever budget that they had, unless someone did it on the weekend, you know, for free, um, like, I don't know, man. This this is very doable. Like uh, all three of us here with uh, just a little bit of training could remake this entire intro. I have no question about it. And I think that's cool for some reasons. And I think it's kind of it's also the thing when I start working at Disney, you start watching movies and it ruins it for you because now you're just like, oh, the the light source doesn't make sense for this particular explosion in the CGI scene. And everyone else is just like, whoa, explosion. You know what I mean? And I'm like, well, the light source would technically be coming from this top right angle. And but I think that aspect of this particular one, it's also like it's gonna keep getting bigger and better, but also that uh that clip right what happens when you can no longer trust information and we're talking about ai in regular world and then bam here you go here's a completely ai generated intro uh clearly using stable diffusion and not even using a high like sampler they're probably using something called a a euler uh ancestral sampler with not many steps just because it looks like it was made efficiently so anyways, dude, that like I love the intro and I hate the intro, but overall it's it's net positive for me. Right. I think it's indicative of a lowering of budgets for this type of stuff. When it might have been there was a couple of years ago where like TV uh streaming TV series got a lot of budget thrown at them. Every idea was greenlit. And you know, I'm thinking like The Witcher, really high budget stuff. And uh, now it seems like they're having to pull back on that because the subscriptions or whatever is not doing it for them. Maybe too many of their viewers uh, are gone because of the <laughs> cooties, cowpokes. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Something's up with that, though. And I feel like when the, there's uh, strikes going on, man, that you've got animator right? and artist strikes and writer strikes going on. And this, I didn't know that. Yeah, they're still yeah. going on right now. And what this does is it's like you don't need you don't need an animator or an illustrator to do this entire sequence. You already got them. You know what I mean? You just train an AI on everything that you've already commissioned from them for the last 20 years. And I actually think that this is kind of a cool thing for comics in particular, because once Marvel and DC um, if they were to like pull ahead, just like Google and some of the other company, open AI and stuff are doing, they could train something on all of their classic and best Disney scenes and make it so that they didn't necessarily have to hire illustrators or animators. They'd be hiring what you'd call keyframers that kind of just like set the coolest looking parts of the scene. And then AI does the rest. And we could almost have like a resurgence of like a, a renaissance of really badass animation like imagine an actual comic book animated and i think we're a little bit far off with this intro that we're looking at right now because all this ai has like a certain trademark look to it where you're like "Eh, okay i I know that's ai but that's not going to be around forever that's like a little burr that gets you know brushed off the edge over the next two or three years i think so i gotta give props to pk he gave me some good info (laughs) as we were planning for this episode um and what you just said you know in regards to what you just said you don't even need writers for this show just maybe one or two good kabbalists (laughs) 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 but uh apparently at the part during the chase scene at the first scene 
that all the license plates had sevens and he goes up seven stories to the roof. And Zion is the seventh Hebrew letter. Put that in your pocket. That will come back later. That's important. Good catch, PK. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Jennifer, she says, is that the infamous Shields Green or Skeels Green, which is also known as Skloss Green? A Basically, it's a type of paint that was in favor in the mid-19th century. It's like, it's basically this kind of ugly dark green. And hmm. people were dying of like arsenic poisoning, if I'm not mistaken, from that. But it was like really popular up until the dawn of the 20th century. Um, oh. And then they stopped using it as a pigment and started using it as an insecticide in, up into the 30s. <laughs> Whoa. Tricky. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that we've been seeing a lot in the demystifiers is, you know, we, we've been calling it the triggering, the triggering green, which <clears throat> I learned that uh, during the world wars in Germany, they were vilifying the color of money systematically uh, through through their propaganda and making all things associated with money into disgusting or evil or diabolical. So it's really fascinating that we're talking about replacing artists with AI in the, the color choice for the demonstration here is the green, which is the color of the aliens, the color of the lizards, you know, camouflaged, but it's also the color of, you know, the garden, that garden of abundance. Good catch from Jenny. Also that uh, the seven being a big part of this, obviously being a Kabbalistic thing. Nice. G for Gravik, main character, and Gaia, a main character. We'll start with G. And then the other scroll that's a main character is Talos. And a T is a seven also in Septimary, Septimary, <laughs> Septenary Gematria. And the Green New Deal. Yeah. And that's the thing, too, is I've been seeing a lot of articles lately, Carrie. Uh, thanks for that comment about how uh, conspiracy theorists' new crazy thing is that climate lockdowns obviously that's crazy to believe in that conspiracy <laughs> theorists are anti-environment they hate the environment <laughs> now i want to point out too that uh green represents venus or the uh the morning star or the illuminati and the heart it, it's uh the heart chakra as well and this show begins like you know it kicked off at the beginning of cancer season Right. We'll finish in Leo and Leo is the heart of the Zodiac. And I also think it's appropriate that it was a uh, born in cancer because cancer has to do with like comforts, you know, coziness, mm-hmm. all of that type of sort of maternal uh, nurturing type of vibe. And it's also the keystone in Royal arch masonry. Cancer is the directly above, you know, the straight up, Sign, and that's where Nick Fury begins the show. He begins the the uh, the series. He's you know up straight up, right at the keystone of the arch because he's trying to be comfortable and avoid his you know discomforts of life on Earth and doing his job. So the Amen. next scene after the intro is him coming down in a beam of light. <laughs> <laughs> he's the uh the savior's returning basically you know mm-hmm. yeah you know uh 
I noticed the same thing PK noticed. I had made a note of it that there are seven stories on the building and seven lights. And one thing, another thing, just a strange pattern that just kept coming up to the extent that I just felt like they were kind of hitting us over the head with it was <clears throat> there were uh, many lamps in the the uh, t- the type of lamp that kept getting flashed just at least in this first episode was specifically like the Pixar style lamp. Do you guys remember the desk lamp that I'm talking about? Which, was- which actually comes from the brave little toaster, which is its own rabbit hole. But yeah, what really? Yeah. Cause, cause brave little toaster were um, these, you know, these like appliances that came to life, but it wasn't as easily commercialized as toys that come to life. Yes. But the guys that worked on Brave Little Toaster eventually went on to Pixar. So that little lamp, I firmly believe that that kind yeah. of transitioned over. It was it was a syncretism, right? That was like Zeus being adopted by the the new guard and changing the name. There, yeah, there, there is so much to that. Like, um, I, I just kind of uh, so many things come to mind, and it, I think you're right. This is a huge rabbit hole, I think. But uh, the idea of um, I think it's hinting to or seeding the mind uh, or we're being steered to think about that. Uh, we're, they're calling it the Internet of Things, right, where your your refrigerator is going to be able to tell you how many slices of bread are left. And it's going to be able to have a, a picture of how what kind of mold is growing on your on your cucumbers. And uh, but what is fascinating about that is it it's like we're kind of being steered into a the the animism and having like a commie <laughs> spirit type of spirituality integrated into our worldview, you know, it, it, which is something to really think about because, you know, just, just the fact that they flashed, I think probably 10 to 12 different little Pixar lamps throughout this one episode is just telling me that they are, uh, uh, hinting towards the idea of uh, things having uh, inanimate objects having consciousness. I'll just say it that way. Sorry for how dark some of the screenshots are. I brightened up some of them. This one's not very good, but the first thing we see of Fury is he's grunting as he comes off of the spaceship and clutching at his right knee. So... Pull that damn right knee. <laughs> now I don't I don't know what kind of awareness of the biofield anatomy writers of this show would have, but the injury to the right knee represents feeling blocked by impossible obstacles or challenges. Which is pretty much right up bang on for where Fury's been at. He's just been stalling and hiding out on the space station because he feels like the challenges and obstacles of being the top head spy head intelligence agent is too much. So they got that right symbolically <laughs> with the right knee. Uh, then he goes and meets up with Talos and Talos shows him this plant that he called that comes from the scroll homeworld, apparently called Santo Milica. So that's basically, apparently that's scrollish language, but that's uh Santo would be like saint, you know, yeah, like milk, milk of the saints, right? Well, that's a good, that's a good weave. I went with Milica 
as the Arabic and Sanskrit name for the flower jasmine, which is Malika, but Milika, Malika, basically you're saying the same thing. <laughs> and in the language of flowers, the jasmine to, to the Hindus, which who call it Malika, represents the everlasting love between a married couple. Or in Chinese, it's the same thing for Buddhism, forever love. <laughs> in the West, it's maybe more associated with purity, but still love. He, he got it from his wife, and she is dead. Bum, bum, bum. So, <laughs> symbolically, to call this alien flower by an Arabic or Sanskrit name for jasmine is accurate to the language of flowers for what the scene is depicting that, you know, he still has everlasting love for his dead wife, uh, reptile lady. So I thought that was fun. And so we also see, we got something. They talk about the, that the plant is adopted to the earthly environment, right? So it's gone through some sort of adaptation. Dylan points out, is it the knee or a golden thigh? That's a good question. If he's the savior, then it could be the thigh. Pythagorean symbolism. Very nice. Good call. We'll keep that in our back pocket for future episodes. See if the thigh Pythagoras Bacchus thing holds water. I do think he's like the, you know, he's the black savior. Makes sense. It would be uh, but I also have to point out that the Fury eye patch is missing. That's kind of like the only requirement to the character design is an eye patch. So <laughs> they bring they bring that up in the third episode. I don't okay. remember what they say about that in the third episode, but I took it as symbolic that when he was the top spy, you know, he had that in an esoteric sense. His eye, his eye had become single. That's why he had wisdom. And now his vision, his eye is no longer single. So he's he's not on his game. Talos tells him, after the blip, you were different. So we've already went in depth on the symbolism of the blip, which is like I think they want it to be for the real world. (laughs) And cooties, it's going to be a part of the backstory of everything Marvel forever. But the blip, the five-year blip of for anyone that's missing out on what that means is from the Avengers movies where half of all life in the universe was deleted from existence for the five snap. years. Yeah. And I, given that that's a big COVID allegory, like really obviously a COVID allegory at the time, I know people personally People I like a lot are family members I love who will say, after I got cooties, they don't call it cooties because they believe in it. I have not been the same. You know, I know people that their health went downhill from the so-called treatments they received for that. And they've been struggling ever since. Not that they're victims of that. They can make a different choice, but it's like a great offer to be victimized like oh i can just slowly spiral downward and decline i have this great <laughs> narrative to attach my victimhood to that everyone can agree with and i've i've seen a scary version of this and it was someone that had lost the sense of smell and taste for like over a year right like a very long term and perhaps permanent 
uh, condition where the the two senses that are the most linked to memories uh, are just gone from your life. And they were like, well, this makes it so much easier to go on a diet because I just don't taste anything anymore. So I could just eat like rice and water and, and I'll be on my way. And it's, it's such a weird way of permanently adapting. I mean, there's obviously an aspect to that of telling yourself it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. You don't need to taste anymore. Like don't, don't be so hard on yourself, but also like, wow, man, that would just be crazy to lose two of your, two of your senses immediately uh, and never get them back. Like we don't have that many set. We're in the single digits. You know what I mean? Even if you're a superhuman, you're still in the single digits of senses. So to lose two of them is, is pretty massive way on how you interpret reality in the outside world period. Dylan says, look up Malacca I in Greek. I don't think that's what they were <laughs> referring to, but it could be. Do you know what that meant? I didn't know what that meant. Think Malacca? Apparently, it's a man who masturbates. <laughs> Which, you know, it is fitting to the guy who lost his wife. He's probably, you know, not got a lot of options anymore. <laughs> oh, man. So then we're getting the backstory about how Fury is uh, supposed to help them find a home. Talos's daughter is mentioned. She's angry that their people don't still have a home. What what other people have a history of diaspora? You know, are they are they a priestly nation? You might say, because <laughs> I think that there's an allegory here with the scrolls that they are Zidjus. You know, we are in conspiracy culture here. This whole show is allegorical for that. My that's my two cents. People that don't have a, a proper home or have been kicked out of their home. And later in the series, we get, we find out that they weren't just poor victims losing their home to someone else. They brought it on themselves with their aggressive warmongering nature. Well, I mean, they're any good scapegoat both warrants the pity that you, you know, that they like kind of get from being outcast, but a good scapegoat is also doing something uh, that you're like, see, that was your fault. You know what I mean? Um, so, uh, so I mean, I think it fills that role. It doesn't even have to be a specific Zizus or any kind of group. It's, it's that archetype of both being the subject of like, oh my God, I can't believe what they're going through, but they kind of deserve what they're going through. Like that's a very specific archetype that plays out in a lot of these like epic stories. Oh, we brought up the Jays and now. Juan is here. Do you have to pay a homunculus money? I I thought that was like like one of the perks is they just do shit for free. And now I got this dude like trying to collect like homunculus support from the courts. Okay, so then we uh we're seeing them sit around the table, Maria Hill. Nick Fury and Talos, they're talking about, you know, Gravik and his evil plan. Apparently these scrolls are, quote, immune to radioactivity, end quote, which means, you know, immune to radioactivity means that you're aware that it doesn't exist as described. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, d- does not play with the rules of normal physics is basically what they're saying. 
Well, with the rules of normal physics that normies believe in. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Have you gone down the, oh, the, guys uh, the rabbit holes of uh, no such thing as, as nuclear weapons before, Thomas? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's a fun one, but it's not. it doesn't make my top 100 yet. I I personally, all I needed was to see the uh, the map with pins dropped in it everywhere that a, allegedly a nuclear bomb was tested over time. And it's like, oh, well, if this was what they told us it is, the world would already be uninhabitable. So, yeah. And (laughs) there's something definitely with uh, the Bikini Atoll um, explosions and like all that, that early testing. If you see the number of people that made it from being involved in that original nuclear testing to then making it into Hollywood or writing like books that that get perpetuated through popular culture. It, it breaks any sort of, you know, uh, logic of statistics. Like there's just an insane amount of people that went from being in the military in that part of the world and seeing, you know, unbelievable things and then having like these huge careers in entertainment. Oh, it's just a coincidence. <laughs> probably actually, yeah, probably, you know, no yeah. big deal. Uh, People still live in places with alleged nuclear fallout. But then we have, um, they bring up the scrolls have front groups, like such as Americans Against Russia, AAR. So, you know, now we're getting into the whole homegrown terrorists thing. The irony is, the irony is they're saying the Americans Against Russia are some kind of like patsy group being manipulated by the scrolls to bring about a big grabbler world war thing. And that's exactly how it is in real life. (laughs) You know, all the anti-Russia propaganda being stirred up is all basically, you know, public social engineering and manipulation for the most part. People that have a couple brain cells to rub together. They're like, I know a few Russians. They're very good at floors. You know, Russians (laughs) do my floors. They did a great job. And AAR is a 119. It's totally a 911 right there. Other AARs in the world. Uh, in military, that's the after action review. There's also the oh, aircraft okay. accident report, the American Academy of Religion, and the Association of American Railroads. Oh, man, those are so fascinating to be on the same list all of those uh because we have um uh was the railroad tompkins versus railroad that gave us corporate personhood it's the airplane airplane crashing that gave us the the patriot act so many things in those uh those acronyms you just listed <laughs> oh yeah, those were spa- Beric Pelagic says those were space cameras capable of withstanding six million degrees. It's so funny <laughs> if you go back and watch the uh, nuclear test film. Owen was sure, Owen Benjamin was sharing this the other day, and it's like you know the little model house being blown away by a fan, <laughs> but it's got the bum, 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 scary music. <laughs> You know, but the camera's fine. <laughs> the camera's totally fine, but everything else is blown away. Super funny. Yeah. Uh, the It's interesting. It's like, it's almost like right now and like this show, they're nostalgic for the time where they could trick people so easily with really low production value. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like as the production value capabilities have gone up, it's become a double-edged sword. Yeah, and, yeah. You know? Well, again, the intro, it feels like maybe someone just did it on like a long weekend. They didn't have to pay any union fees and stuff. Um, but also this, this hits on, and I'm not going to go on a, a wild tangent here, but I just want to say how much this hurts to see the comic medium where if, if my one thing about comics, um, that I like to kind of evangelize is that you can make the most outlandish thing without a CGI budget. Like typically it takes the same amount of time to draw a planet exploding and like 3d holograms and like crazy action sees takes about the same amount of time to draw that as it would two people sitting at a table, having a conversation. And there's almost no other medium and entertainment that lets you have that span of control over what's happening. Um, and then like when we say you, you get these Marvel comic books, which have unlimited possibilities, um, but now we see it come to the screen and it's like, oh yeah, it's like, like everything's a conversation somewhere and the, like the budget's fairly low and you don't get that cool part of comic books where anything can happen. Like, and you kind of get that sense as this goes on, you're like, okay, they probably don't have a huge budget where it's just going to nonstop be shape-shifting aliens and explosions like a comic book would be. Yeah, that's, that's what I love about comics too, as a medium. It's free, full freedom of imagination and expression. And at most you need, you you need a minimum of one guy to make it, (laughs) you know, one guy could potentially do the whole thing, you know, maybe three or five people make a book more typically, but yeah, that's a, that's a really funny point. How almost like the, uh, the perverse irony that as comic books are adapted into film and then those things are lower budget. It's like, missing the point of what makes comics so good in the first place so that budget is no object in that medium. And you have to kind of match that. You know, I, I do believe that and that's where Dr. Strange, I think really shines. Cause you can tell that there was a huge, you know, budget for that, the CGI in that one. Yeah. Th- those movies are pretty good. We covered those. So then uh, we have Gravik. He's trying to start a war with us and Russia with the, Dirty bomb. Oh, Jesus. Just got to point out, you know, there's a certain <laughs> there, there's a certain word grabbler that gets associated with a certain group of people that manipulate and cause wars for profit. And if you allow the B switch with the letter V, as happens in a lot of languages, V to B, you know, it's instead of grab, it's grab, <laughs> grab, grabbler, <laughs> gravic, grabbler, just, you know. But that's fun. Uh, he says, and then Talos is saying, if Grabbler, I mean, Gravik gets his way, your species will cease to exist. That's code for eliminate the goy. <laughs> <laughs> the Georgia goy destinies. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, we got to get in the uh, the whole racism plug, right? You got to imply that the uh, Russians are racist. How dare them? Terrible. Because uh, uh, Taylor says, Fury, you're going for a walk in Moscow at night? Yeah. Something like you? They should have said, I'll be fine. No one will even be able to see me. I'm wearing all black. <laughs> <laughs> also, dude, I'm Nick fucking Fury. Like, who the hell are you talking to right now? Right. Great point. That is such a great point, Thomas. Yeah. 
they really go out of their way to drive that home. You know, the, there's no black people in Russia or Russia is extra super racist. There is now. There's one. <laughs> but they've never seen him before. So it's like the uh, the Santa Maria pulling up on the shores, right? And Indians can't see it. You know, one thing I didn't mention is how Nick Fury being played by Samuel L. Jackson is kind of like an art imitate life and imitate art type of thing. Cause in the comics, not the first and original, you know, six, one, six main Marvel universe, Nick Fury, he's a white guy, but the ultimate comics, which honestly the MCU pulls as much from ultimate comics that set like parallel universe, that other imprint that Marvel does where we get like uh Miles Morales as Spider-Man, for example, the ultimate comics universe has a Nick Fury intentionally going back to the like 2000 when the Emperor launched intentionally drawn to resemble Nick Fury or uh, Sam Jackson. <laughs> so I think like the main, you know, the, the main thing that we really want out of this show is him yelling and threatening people who are tied up in a chair while waving a gun. And we get a little bit of that, but I feel like we could have had more. 24 with a little bit more CGI. <laughs> yes. When I was young, I, I so I so loved that show. I wanted to be Jack Bauer. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's important to imply the Russians are racist. That that we we have that laid out. Uh well, there's nothing more than nostalgic than some old Cold War sentiments. <laughs> And so here we have, uh, do you guys see what's on the table? Uh, I mean, I'm going to assume Russian vodka, but is that what you're pointing yeah, out? Vodka. Maybe I didn't get the best screenshot, but solitaire. This is a uh, cards laid out in solitaire. Okay. Again. Okay. So here we have it again. The truthers are playing solitaire. The truthers are isolated. You know, that's part of the plan. All according to the plan. Then we have shot over to the White House. We got a scene with Rhodey and the president, Joe Biden, or uh, President Ritson. His name is Ritson. Find that interesting. You know, the Rit, Priestly Rit. And he's got the white, he's rocking white hair, kind of little Biden esque. Yeah, and we have a hidden hand guy behind him. That's fun. In the painting on the right. It's like Grant. Now we have uh, just a shot, a few shots of Fury going on his walk, getting dirty looks from the uh, racist Russians. Uh, terrible people. Then we have, uh, <laughs> he runs into a girl playing with a a child playing with a rainbow ball. So, you know, which is remarkably clean for playing with it on the street. <laughs> but that yellow is like they just got it out of the store. Well, we can't look at rainbow without thinking gay. And now it's a ball. So, you know, it it just makes me think space is fake and gay. uh, (laughs) but this girl is playing with the ball and the gay ball while her 
mother is too concerned with racism to care about the fact that their child is being indoctrinated by fake and gay stuff. That's just right. my, that's my read on this. Let alone that there's a kid chasing a ball in the street at night. Like there's so much cognitive dis- dissonance cooked into this one little aspect of his night walk. It's, it's hilarious. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I also Why like that it? she needs supervision to play with this ball. <laughs> like you need an adult to be around. If you're playing with a ball, you have to have an adult there. That's <laughs> right. Because, because there were, there were lurkers looking to bag somebody. Luckily there was a black guy coming through to put the bill. <laughs> so they didn't bag the child and they bagged the black guy instead. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, yeah, PK, this is the same girl. Nick chases down later in the bomb scene and she still got her, her gay ball. Totally. Totally. Yeah, exactly. It's a distraction. You know, it's a, Fake and gay mainstream distraction. Racism and the ball and all of this. <laughs> Dylan, heliosexuality rots culture. <laughs> <laughs> I love heliosexuality, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, the, that's a good way to de- describe the whole ball model. Beautiful. And yeah, we see this girl in her <laughs> rainbow ball later, which is bizarre. Like, they really wanted us to see it. And yes, the, he gets bagged by the secret agents. Totally. Uh, the bag men grab the black man. And then this is a good scene. He gets the, the bag taken off his eyes. And here he is being confronted by this woman in red. And she says, hmm, a large black man in Moscow could either be Nick Fury or the ghost of Paul Robeson. Had you guys heard of Paul Robeson before? I had to look him up. I had to look him up too. Gabe, do you want to? Do you want me to? Do you want me to take this or you? Uh, well, you you go ahead. Uh, but it just felt like we were being yeah led down a rabbit hole uh, quite by design. <laughs> so he was a Paul Robeson was a bass baritone concert artist, an actor, a professional football player, and an activist. Wow. Very accomplished. He, I'm, I'm looking, just reading this from the Wikipedia, um, but I won't go through all of it, but basically his political activities had to do with like, you know, just ex- extreme leftist uh, type of thing. And he was scrutinized by the FBI. He's on the watch list of subversives. You know, he was investigated during McCarthyism and he refused to recant his left-wing beliefs so his passport was denied and uh, he couldn't leave the country anymore and so he couldn't really make the income he used to make Uh, and then in 1958 his right to travel was restored after the supreme court decision kent versus dulles so (laughs) is that dulles as in like alan dulles as in cia i am pretty sure yeah uh, I, think, I think it was, yeah. Who else would it be? Yeah, the, li- the lizards. The lizards pop their head up again. Oh wow, Terrible. man! This case is interesting. It, it went. This case they went all the way back to the fucking Magna Carta for her precedent about, on the right to travel. 
Right, right. Whoa. And it is, it, it, it actually, it, some of the language that popped up, I'm glad you were digging on it again. Yeah, some of the language that popped up is they actually talk about his substantive rights. Uh, and I, yeah, and the fact that they use substantive rights 100%. is 100% important. Yeah, it's, it's telling us that it's going back to very old common law, uh, uh, you know, rights and writs. I'll just say that if anything, bringing up this character, Paul Robeson, is a nod to probably a nod to the fact that you know, the, the black population has been weaponized against itself and almost become like a doomsday weapon against itself, as have women, as have every other group that would be a so-called major minority mm-hmm. by the, you know, radical left agenda. Right. And the old man river song, I actually uh, watched it, watched the, uh, the recording of it today, you know, the modern day, uh, and it's about Mississippi. It's a song about the Mississippi and talks about how the Mississippi brings, uh, you know, different goods and services uh, seasonally. Um, but the Mississippi is the, uh, that's actually the uh, seven rivers of uh, the land of extended territories of Egypt. Uh, so that's kind of uh, what that was nodding to in uh, some of my works is, uh, you know, that Mississippi is, uh, let me think of, uh, Isaiah eleven fifteen. I'm pretty sure is where you'll find the, uh, talking about the, uh, the rivers of Egypt, uh, drying up seven rivers. And that's absolutely, uh, Mississippi. There's good stuff in Dylan Zakosio's spirit world series regarding the Nile being Christ or Krishna. And, like the Nile symbol, like that these savior archetypes are symbolic of the river that inundates annually and yada, yada. That's so, cool. you know, she's hoping for a command. She says to Fury, I was hoping for a command performance of old man river. Granted that we've already seen the savior archetype with him, you know, coming down in a beam of light. <laughs> He's very much the, the Bacchus figure. I mean, Krishna means black. A word means black or swarthy. So, you know, he's potentially, we're potentially getting a nod to that. It's, it's there, I think. And <laughs> what did you think about this line? So did you just have me extraordinarily renditioned by a group of your thugs? <laughs> Isn't that basically what they're trying to do to uh, uh, Julian Assange? They're they're trying to extraordinarily rendition him uh, because he does he's uh, not even a American citizen. You know he we he does not belong to us, and we're trying to go into another country and swoop him out for our for our designs. Yeah, it was all very Julian Assange esque as far as I could tell. Oh yeah, like he's kind of the first or one of the first public enemy number one quote-unquote truthers. And this character in the red, her name is Sonia. <laughs> Important to note, Sonia is a Ukrainian or Russian name, meaning, you know what it means? Mm-mm. Wisdom. 
Oh, wow. It's basically it's the, Sophia. It's the same as Sophia. Yeah. And wow. she's kind of like the head of intelligence in, in this like uh, context. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Wowzers. Okay, well. The head and the wisdom are thing. It keeps coming back over and over again in this show. It totally does. And she's wearing the red. So she is the res. She's 100% the res. <laughs> <laughs> she's also going to be... um. This is kind of fun, but she's also going to be uh, Mephistopheles in a couple interesting ways. But uh, he Mephistopheles dresses in red, like this this brilliant color red, uh, in a couple times, and they play with that in the story of Oust. So there's something of that going on too, with uh, you know wheeling and dealing with his soul. Hold on a second. I, my computer is getting too hot. I need to crack my door. Be right back. And one thing, one thing that'll be, uh, I think it comes up in the next couple screenshots, but just a footnote to bring up later is, you know, she offers him a, a, a drink and he's like, Oh yeah, I th- I'll take you up on that. You know, he takes her up on a, on, on a beverage, but then he, when she pours it and hands it to him, he's like kind of, uh, he's a little taken aback by the fact that it's not this, the high end, the good stuff, the nice beverage. And she says something about, you know, cutting corners. (laughs) Uh, well, uh, that comes up later. Uh, and that's something I've been paying attention to is, uh, formalities around, uh, drinking or formalities around, uh, dinner practices, just these little cultural nuances, because there's something that comes up later uh, in the Krill camp that's a, just a fascinating contrast to that. I just grabbed this screenshot because look at this crazy Kyborium behind uh, Fury here. Yeah, man. There's some wild stuff in her room. A lot of uh, owls and white flowers and clocks and horses and that that clock over his right shoulder that that's where seeing to the left it reminds me of one of those old death clocks that they used to uh make with i guess like obscene amounts of um like toxic you know fumes that would kill people as they made them (laughs) i just googled death clock and apparently uh there are there's you can get yourself an NFT that counts down how long you have until you die. <laughs> I like that. That's fuck. <laughs> okay, so anyway, Kyborium is the uh why I brought up the Kyborium. <laughs> I realize I'm maybe just glossing over that. The Kyborium is a word that refers to two things. First of all, in the cancer associated card the chariot if you look at that card probably everybody's familiar with it but yeah i won't i won't bother pulling it up but look up the chariot card if you don't know what i'm talking about you have these four posts and an uh covering over the top of the chariot rider that's the cancer Mm -hmm. sign we're in cancer right now and when the show comes out that four posted thing with the overhead of stars is called a kyborium now, in a church or temple, this kyborium 
four posted thing would be in the front of the church. And then often there would be some kind of a vessel or a, a grail, if you will, some kind of receptacle for the wine. <clears throat> and that's called a kyborium as well. So I think that they, this thing behind him looks a lot like a very ornate version of that. Yes. And there appears to be some kind of Aphrodite figure on the front of it. Yeah. And it'll, it'll, in, it'll have to do with like uh covering and also it'll be like uh, in, uh insurance. Like, you know, if it's insured, then it's covered by this agreement. It'll have to do with covenants. And also uh, it has to do with government, you know, uh, even the word kybernethes uh, is, I think, the uh, Greek word for government or governor. That makes sense because she's the head, head of things. Kybernetics, yeah, that's like the steersman. So kind of showing how words for, well, <laughs> even kyber and gover are basically philologically related words, G and C switching, V and B switching, cyber, gover, see what I mean? I mean, vowels pretty much interchange easily. That's no no stretch at all. So yeah, cyber and gover <laughs> are words that uh, are related. Then we have him looking at the clocks. Do you have some sort of clock fetish, fetish you've been <laughs> hiding from me? <laughs> This is profound because she basically explains to him that when the old head of MI6 retires, then they put a new clock on the wall. So this is talking about how, you know, this is like, in, in my opinion, a reference to the incarnations of the savior deity or archetype that a new cycle of time begins and ends with the, the whoever the next top of the totem pole is coming in and out in terms of like who the savior deity is. Yeah. It almost looks, it, may, it makes me think that they're actually referencing a, a, an actual historical MI6 member. Uh, and, yeah. And the fact that they're uh, keeping trophies on people's, uh, you know, on people's how much life they have left. And also another thing, I mean, so many thoughts come to mind, but I also consider uh, jobs in the government that are designated for life, for the entirety of your life. Um, This kind of, it just kind of hits, it hits on a certain level when I learned like that the, all of the, uh, SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States of the, of the United States, that they are all in there for their entire lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, to the extent that um, that their death is like a, is a building up of anticipation. Uh, it could be it has ceremonial or ritualistic potentiality. And uh, and I have a whole thing about how Ruth Bader Ginsburg she died on her on the most perfect day for her, uh, spiritually speaking. She, she got to die on her choice day of the whole year. That's the day she would have picked. And the same thing for, uh, for, um, 
uh, Justice Scalia, Anton, Antonin Scalia. He died on Lupercalia, the, the day of the, the hunt. He's the secret society of the Brotherhood that venerates that sacred day. And that's the day he gets to die on. You know, King Kill, right? This is the transfer of energy at the most astrologically aligned time. It's, it's yes. textbook magic. Yes. And the fact that their entire life is just built up in anticipation for that one event is so significant. Uh, so, yeah, any position in the government that is there for your lifetime is definitely going to be harvested and utilized to the utmost. Now, I don't want to fall into the trap of dehumanizing or othering, right? But as a thought experiment, they're talking about a couple of people are talking about Jen in the chat. You know, if there were a way that reptilians or shapeshifters could operate, as we talked about at the beginning, the way that is most feasible to me would be spiritual entities that could body snatch, <laughs> you know, and if you, you know, if we're dealing with that kind of a situation with, you know, the example you just gave the, in the King Kill 33 of it all, the perfect ritualistic synchronicity that seems to orchestrate beyond human capability, a lot of media events you know, go watch Jamatronator's YouTube channel and how by the numbers, different events in media, be it a sporting event and then a celebrity death and then maybe the release of some movie or something, all will have these numerical synchronicities baked in. And in all three of those realms, just like we saw with Paul Robeson, <laughs> you know, these are they're all actors, really. The athletes, the politicians, the actual admitted actors. If there were some kind of gin body takeover going on with, say, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, would it be reasonable to think that the beings controlling that puppet could just sort of pull the plug on that biology on the appropriate day for a larger magical working that might be going on? You know, or there's also in a less evil <laughs> light, there's plenty of stories about, say, Buddhist monks that decide today's the day I'm leaving my body and they just go into a meditation pose and uh, they never come back out of it and their body doesn't even decay properly. And it's sort of like self mummifies. So all that's in the mix too. I feel like there's a practical example of this too, especially like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, where you don't need a reptilian or interdimensional uh, entity to come into her body. She probably just has a handler that's like, you know, come on, grandma, we're going to sign this now and check here. And you just kind of like holds her hand and makes her sign it as they go. And I feel like that's kind of that's it's related to the King kill because instead of you actually doing this big sacrificial act in the middle of, you know, Dealey Plaza and everyone seeing it, you're still transferring that energy and power onto like the new blood. It's just in a much more vampiric and maybe like retirement home sort of way, but you're still kind of like taking their agency and using their agency and they become a proxy at a certain point. And that's kind of what King kill 33 represents is this proxy and this like cremation of care kind of ritual, because it's not the body of the person and it's not even their personality. It's their like energy, charisma, focus, attention that you're really transferring from one to the other. So even if you let R uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg get super old, see how they like, they kept making documentaries and putting her on shirts. And she was like, Whoa, 
woke and hip and like everyone wanted to dress up and break dance and do TikTok dances as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's almost like they're raising the stock so then they can be like, okay, sell, sell, sell. And that sell, sell, sell is like, okay, we're going to sign these documents on our own now. We don't need you anymore. And so I don't know. I think it's like raising her stock of, of like, getting the public and you know can kill 33 baby I, I feel like it's it's almost like a fact at this point good points man and i i can't uh one of my favorite dylan Sicotioisms is that you know the scotus right of freemasonry <laughs> <laughs> the Supreme Court of the United States is SCOTUS. I love that. We also get a nice owl. All right. <laughs> up here, he puts the uh, surveillance bug in the owl's eye. That's fun. Since we're dealing with uh, Athena <laughs> symbolism, Minerva uh-huh. symbolism, Pallas Athena, Pallas's wisdom. And that's kind of the moment that you realize that he was he was getting uh, taken in by design. This is all play, playing into his plan all along. Yeah. Uh, he says, or she says, a clock goes up when your time in the circus is done. Well, circus is a word that is interesting. <laughs> it's more like Kirke then it might seem that the circus and the church are quite thematically linked. We'll say that. These lamps behind here are intense, too. And then he says... You don't say your your time in the circle is done or your time in the cycle is done. Exactly. It's a cycle of time. Thank you. That's what I'm I'm talking about. (laughs) You know, even when, uh, speaking of the tiny hats, they, the derogatory word for them, which is kike, is a word that comes from circle. The, the circle, yeah. Uh, Cecil Rhodes, uh, you know, some of his hidden wills established the circle. It's like the, they say that that's the secret society that ate all the other secret societies. So then you see here too that, uh, what are they sitting on, Gabriel? La sofa. <laughs> he's he's raining on the sofa. Yep the the head, the ruler, the wise one gives orders from the sofa. That's old world shit. I think that's why. So I mean, it's obvious that that's why Sophia wisdom and sofa share a root. Mm-hmm. As Gabriel he, says, he's talking the, to Sophia here, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. She's her name is Sonia, which is the same meaning as Sophia, hundred percent. Right. She's the sofa rain. <laughs> She's the sovereign. But like, read this. She, he wants to kill it in its crib. That's a interesting language coming from old man river, old the old man time. <laughs> you know the the previous epoch, the previous head spy head of wisdom. You know, he's no longer really, he's kind of like the Kronos character, right? The next, the next iteration, the next world, the world has to die and be reborn for the next world to come about. And that's the scroll world, theoretically. You know, that's. Is he eating right going. here too? Is he eating something? 
He's taking a shot of bad bourbon, I think. Okay. Yeah, this is the cheap, the cheap bourbon. Because you said Kronos, and it's like he's in that same pose as like going to eat one of his kids right here. <laughs> they had to do some pro- like good clothing and and camera angles, I think, to conceal the uh, the pounds that Sam has packed on. You know, he's getting older, but he maybe he ate a lot of babies. But he says kill in its crib that to me that's like really symbolic of the the next incarnation of the savior typically has some kind of you know flee from king herod type situation hide you in the basket and float you down the river etc there's a there's a danger of being killed in your crib if you're the next the next round of humanity and, what's that? and that's like moses and mises and Sar- um sargon of Akkad or whatever uh, all have that that exact same story right of the baby being put into the basket and whisked away from the evil ruler that then you know knows that this baby's the one that's going to come back and like rise against him so he sends all his people across the the plains and everything and another like really strong archetype yeah yeah it's uh it's part of the system. It's a requirement of the system. And then <laughs> he's uh, talking about the old Nick Fury. <laughs> uh, she says the Thanos, Thanos' snap changed you. No matter how hard you fight, there's always someone stronger to undermine you. But I just thought old Nick, you know, that's a word for the devil. <laughs> and that's Kronos. That's the, the old man. That's classic classic he's old nick and then uh this is this thing's been floating around in the back of the scene the whole time but it's a head (laughs) you know like a goddess head bust thing that's just on theme you know don't forget scroll is basically the word skull yeah and then we get to cut to the scene of visiting for the first time the Secret hideout of the terrorist scrolls, 312 kilometers southwest of Moscow. So I was curious, what's 312 in miles? And it turns out it's 193 miles. Well, then uh, that really piqued my interest, guys, because 193 is the days left in the year from the date of release of the show. Remember, it starts with present day. So that's 621. June 21st leaves 193 days in the year. So we have 193 showing up again. It's a clue to us that 193 is important. It's first first thing that came to mind is that it's the 44th prime. And it kind of tripped me me out because this was the 44th line of my notes because I have them bullet pointed and then bullet points are numbered. And I got to this on number 44 and 193 is the 44th prime. And I was like, okay, there's something to this. Let's dig deeper. Wow. And you drove to the gas station and bought a scratch off, right? (laughs) (laughs) I did not. I guess that would have been the right thing. That to would do. have been. That's when you get the seven seven uh, sort of scratch off because all the planets have aligned. So, Gabe, I, what what did you come up with on one ninety three? Before I share some of the other things on it, one ninety three, one hundred ninety three days left in the year when this came out. Yeah, and we're one hundred ninety three miles from Moscow. Yeah, man. 
Well, 193 will be uh, A-R-K, or excuse me, A-R-C, A-R-C, and um, just your ordinal reduced, so it's an arc. Um, and arc means wisdom, and it means yep. head in Greek. Wisdom yep. and head, arc. Yep, and we're, it is at the, we're at the crown of the Analima as we go through the solstice as well. So yeah, all those things of having to do with the pinnacle. I was blessed with a share from PK who's in the chat right now. He sent me this book about Kabbalistic gematria. And so we have the one, some of the, some of the things that 193 equaled according to this book, first of all was the, uh, I didn't transcribe what Hebrew letters these are. I think it's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you want to know the exact Hebrew letters, I'll just, I'll make sure and forward this to the uh, universe chat. But it's, I think, something Zayin Lamed. Anyway, so what the first word means, master of knowledge. It's the title of a Rosicrucian grade. It's one proficient in the sphere of Hod, Hod. Um, so the master, so 193 is a Kabbalistic number for the ma- master of knowledge. That sounds very much like the spy master. And there's also the Hebrew letter Zayin spelled in full is Zayin Yad Nun, which has a numerical value in Gematria of 193. And then there's moral philosophy. Philosophia Moralis apparently equals 193. And, um, or this is something related to the Zion. I'm not 100% sure what this book's trying to say. But, and then just the most obvious breakdown, too. But of course, the, the word philosophy meaning philosophia, the love of knowledge. Yeah, love of wisdom, love of Sophia. And then another thing they reference to this value of the letter name Zayin spelled in full was the Frateres Crucis, <laughs> the brothers of the golden cross. All persons who really fulfill the ideals of the great of practicus are entitled to be so-called brothers of the golden cross. And it is partly on this account that these ideas are associated with the solar of golden crosses of 13 squares associated with the grade. So, okay, <laughs> this is where I need to bring this up. One of the things that we haven't really mentioned yet is at about the same time this show comes out, we have the Wagner Group situation going on with Russia and the Ukraine. I didn't know much about this other than the whispers. Uh, you hear on the headlines, you see, I didn't really look into it until today, but the Wagner group is apparently a private military organization that attempted some kind of coup in Russia about when this show comes out. So it's almost like the delay of the show coming out on the solstice as it did. Wasn't really a delay. (laughs) Maybe, (laughs) you know, maybe it was right on time. I'm not sure, but this is the logo of the Wagner group. Do you, does this look like a golden cross brother brotherhood of the golden cross? We have cross words, cross swords here. I think that's 
in the mix, man. You know, because what are these scrolls doing in Russia? They are trying to form a coup in a sense to cause a war with the West. And so, I mean, we're thematically, it's the same shit going on in the show and in supposed real life. Yeah, and uh, I've also found, do you guys remember during, I don't know, it's a couple of years ago, there was all this, like during cooties, there were these military vehicles with the big Z on them. The Asimovs. Is that an Asimov thing? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Well, remember seven is Zion. Zion spelled out is 193 in Hebrew gematria. Ooh, nice. Good one. That's a good one. And the alternative logo for the Wagner group is apparently, let me just pull it back up. You see this Z? Big red Z. Big red Z. Look Z at is that. the third glyph in the Russian alphabet, uh, according to people that told me this. <laughs> that, really? That yeah. So oh. the big Z, the big Zion, the 193. There's something here. I, I'm yeah. sure we're just scratching the surface of what is really being put across Kabbalistically. So, uh, man, I got it. it. It's just too close. It's too close for me not to say anything. But um, long story short, uh, I've discovered that um, Socrates is encoding the Cancer constellation in a hundred thousand million different ways um over on the slick dissident channel very recently i did a, a fun little uh correspondence of the the scene that is the painting of his last moment where he's reaching for the cup of hemlock and he's about to drink the poison the socially mandated poison uh and he's pointing to the sky and he's saying his last words before he takes that drink and uh, long story short, uh, all of the details of the scene in the painting are uh, zodiacal constellations. And uh, Socrates is Cancer. He's his anatomically like his arm is the is the constellation Cancer. His knees and his hips line up with Cancer. He's it just fits right on his body. But this is also uh, he, uh, he, I am finding that he is revealing. Uh, the donkey god, the uh, uh, Set, the god uh, Set. And so his name in reverse, Socrates' name in reverse, is the Set Articos. And there is something really fascinating going on around this potentially worshipping a donkey uh, covertly, not, not on the public level, like secretly worshipping donkeys. And the reason why this really fascinates me is because in Capoeira, we have certain rituals and ceremonies that are uh, designed to emulate the donkey mating uh, rituals. Um, so I actually have some experience in uh, honoring these animal totems ritualistically. And it's kind of blown my mind to find out that, uh, that these philosophers that uh, are also keeping these secrets of these archons of the heavens uh, alive. So yeah, Set has been on my radar and I'm not seeing him as just a donkey anymore. I'm starting to see him as a zebra specifically. 
I had to bring it around to the Z because the zebra in the, uh, the camouflage, also the aspect of being a chimera or mixed uh, genetics, being a hybrid, all of these things are really uh, just kind of pulling my, my attention forward. So I thought I would mention that Set, the donkey-headed god, may not just be any donkey. He might be a zebra. You you mentioned this is a little bit crazy tangent, but you mentioned the mating ritual of donkeys, and this is actually something that's kind of interesting that that donkeys are fairly unique um, compared to horses and zebras because they have their own hierarchical social system where horses and zebras, in particular, they have what you would call like a harem system, which. Uh, works exactly as you would imagine. It's like the top dog gets all the girls, um, which is something that's very unique about horses and zebras that does not apply to donkeys. Cause like they, they, they're like, I guess more um, like individualistic, you could say. That is very interesting. Hmm. I like that. We know uh, this traveling ancient priest class had a lot of, Horse symbolism has always been in the mix, deeply so. Through Gematria, Equus being the same as Jesus 27 and Mercury 27. And then the symbolism of the ship and navigation being represented by horses. But also, (laughs) it makes sense, too, that uh, I, I never heard about this harem thing that horses do, but... And it's very appropriate to the the priest kings of old. That's for sure. I also, on the 193 tip, I brought up uh, a website to check out where in the Bible are, are there any words that equal 193 in he, in the Hebrew Bible. And I, there are only two, actually. The first was a word that meant the arrow snake. And an arrow snake is evidently so-called from how it darts and springs on its prey in the matter of a rattlesnake. The Hebrew root from which the name is derived seems to be related to an Arabic root, meaning jump or leap. The arrow snake is mentioned in the prophecy of Isaiah as one of the creatures to inhabit the land of the Edomites. So there's that. And also, I think when we you say arrow snake, I just can't help but think of Eros, you know, Eros, like the savior deity uh, and an arrow with a snake wrapped around it and not just a tramp stamp from the early 2000s. (laughs) Yeah, like that's a caduceus type of symbol for sure. But then the only other thing that was in the Hebrew Bible that equaled 193 in Gematria is a word that meant the object of attack, the mark to be attacked. And dude, where is this 193 showing up in the show? Just right here. Their object of attack, 312 wow. kilometers southwest of Moscow. You know, obviously Russia's in the crosshairs right now. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. PK in the chat says, I heard yesterday on a show about this Golden Cross Brotherhood, and the guy was saying they were involved in the American Civil War, like not in a good way. Oh, I know who. Yeah, I know. What Interesting he's in about. context. Uh, wasn't that, that was Knights of the Golden Cross, who John Wilkes Booth, I think, was apparently part of, wasn't it? Or yes. Do I, do I have that wrong? No, you're totally spot on. Yes. 
totally. And there's a there's booze, you know, popping up out of that booze. Definitely uh, brings this the Buotes, the sacred void, the great void of the of uh, Virgo to mind. But yeah, that was uh, that that was on. Um, I think a New York Patriot was doing a weave, uh, having a lot to do with the the Golden Brotherhood. Oh, and you know what else uh, about the the swords, the crossed swords? You know that hails back to uh, and and a rebellion, this Wagner re- rebellion that hails back to the uh, the uh, the line in the. Bible where uh, Jesus tells them that they'll have to sell their cloak to buy a sword. And that is that we, he need, he required that they had two swords to spark off that rebellion. And so um, I just think that it's interesting that that very famous line is intrinsic to that group with the, their logo of crossed swords. Good stuff. There's probably a much deeper there, there. Yeah, I think that even goes back to uh, Sanctisades and the uh, uh, Unum Sanctum. The story, the yeah, the foundation of Unum Sanctum is based on that uh, sell sell your cloak to buy a sword parable. Now we see this guy coming up to the the scroll coming up to the gates of the scroll community. Interesting that on the back of their jacket is Homo backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and he's he he says what he wants is to be at home in his own skin, right? And his name is Beto, just basically like Beta. <laughs> All of that, just you know, it's there. Make of it what you will. Then we meet Gaia, whose name is the same as an old name for the Earth, which bef- also, besides being Gaia, was called Gay. <laughs> and on the back of their jackets is homo. I'm just saying it's there. Uh, and her first line is take your natural form. Yeah, this is the, yeah, then that's the line where he says he just wants it to be home in his own skin, right? Yeah. Yeah. Home in my own skin. And he's got the, oh, he's got the checkerboard, you he know, be, the, he doesn't want to be in the closet. Right, right. And he's wearing his checkerboard uh, uh, hoodie, which it never ceases to amaze me how it will always indicate a point of of exchange. You know, like they exchange password, pleasantries, whatever. You got to say the right word to get to enter, to come into the base. So he's going from the wilderness into the into the uh, public into the populace, uh, but he's got, there's always a checkerboard, you know, uh, that, that point of exchange. It's very fascinating. And then when she's, when she serves him up that, uh, that plant, she's being like extremely hospitable. She's like, she's brought like a fruit from the motherland that has actually survived. It even, uh, went through, uh, uh, mutation to survive here in the, uh, in the, in the earthly climates. Um, and she's going above and beyond just to give him a taste of home. And I think this, I find to be kind of, um, 
I don't know. I, I would say cunningly. I'm not really sure if this is intentional or not. I can't tell, but it's very cunning if it is intentional. And that is that the rebels are being depicted as having like very uh, uh, selfless, uh, heart-centered uh, tradition around exchange of food. That she gives him that one, the one taste of home, and he's eating it. He's like, you know. Uh, sucking on the the fruit of the motherland, whereas with Samuel L. Jackson, uh, Nick Fury, when he's uh, getting this shot of whiskey from his fellow spy, she's given him like the bottom of the barrel whiskey, not the good stuff. You know what I mean? And she doesn't care what he thinks about it. So there's just something uh, strongly contrasted in their traditions around food. I thought we also ought to point out that if these are the terrorist scrolls, you know, these are the radical ones, <laughs> they grow their own produce. We're identifying the radical with the homesteader here. Good call. I feel like that's definitely been going on <laughs> lately. And uh, here we get the nice overhead shot of the not spring, so desolate nuclear wasteland no. <laughs> it looks pretty it's good springfield <laughs> you know i live in springfield the springfield <laughs> the simpsons one we have, have a they, i don't have they actually claimed a, a specific one because i think all i'm saying is open. we have a lake springfield and there's a nuclear power plant on the lake <laughs> okay <laughs> do you have a blinky though that's the real question i've never gone looking it's a big ass lake maybe <laughs> <laughs> the three-eyed fish is blinky right yeah that's right just saying i mean we got uh we got the right kind of donuts and everything we could be we could be <laughs> the springfield but anyway the point here is that uh this does not look like a desolate nu nuclear wasteland to me neither does any area that is so-called fallout other than that the buildings are all decayed but you know to me, this whole thing is like a reveal of nukes aren't really what you're taught to believe, but we got everyone doing duck and cover enough times that it's generationally hardwired in as a fear. And your cognitive dissonance will take care of removing your ability to perceive what's right in front of your eyes with that. You know, just remember, like, Fukushima, guys, Fukushima. OMG, OMG, <laughs> we're all going to die. I don't, I never died. I've literally never died. And they even, when they pull out the map of all the scroll headquarters and they say that, you know, because they, uh, they're not subject to radiation poisoning, it, uh, it almost is like a big reveal on what a amazing, uh, real estate boon that, uh, radiation could be, you know, what kind of fraud and scam they probably can run under the cover of radiation. So Cody just brought up 193 AD is the year of the five emperors in which there were five claimants for the title of Roman emperor. It started a period of civil war where multiple rulers vied for the chance to be Caesar. I almost brought that up. I wanted to bring that up in the point where the, the opening scene where he's like five different groups, five different attacks, Whoa. all the same shit. Because yeah. I was thinking year of the five emperors, five different Wanna be leaders, you know? That okay. there's probably something there. Yeah, that is something. Wow. 
some Royal Rumble going on there. Yeah, good one, Dakota. Yeah, thanks for reminding us of that. (laughs) Everyone else stays in the compound, she tells him, except for the soldiers. You know, compound is a pretty charged word. (laughs) I'll just say that. It's a charged word. These guys, being that they're green, you know, it's the, uh, it's eco-terrorism. It's the green agenda. I think there was a branch of um, Alexandria, the Library of Alexandria. There was one branch that was, they were all shut-ins. They weren't allowed to leave. It's probably where all the eunuchs were hanging out. You just assumed they were eunuchs and there was nothing to do. <laughs> or maybe there were just a bunch of malakas. <laughs> I'm happy to know that word now. Uh, call people that. So in this scene, we get taken into the secret back room in the scroll compound where they keep their shells. PK, thank you for letting us know that they call the Sephirot of the Clipothic tree shells. That is the underside or the, the evil twin of the Kabbalistic tree of life. Shells. And so to me, this looks a lot like big data mining operations. It's pretty much big data mining. And with big data mining, identity theft becomes easier. You can simulate someone's behavior online pretty easy. Not to mention how AI can impersonate someone's look and make video that looks like them and voice. Uh, well, big data is how AI works at all. It just It's just by absorbing and learning from everything possible. Go on. Well, I mean, because so so AI, basically, it's not even like we have to tell it what to do. You just give it an infinite amount of information and it'll start detecting its own patterns. So it's at a certain point, the original concept of data mining is like we want to find out information about these specific things. But once there's almost like this singularity crossover where the AI doesn't even need for humans to tell it what kind of category of information it's looking for. It's just finding patterns and relationships and, you know, correlations between things that far surpass what like human correlations would be because we can only correlate things that exist in our plane of existence and go back to our own personal lived experiences. But when you've got this big data you know, like warehouse and everything connected to one big network, they're all learning from things that that are not limited to the same meat space concepts that we are. Right. Like the market value, market value price of cod oil correlated to like in France correlated to the amount of roadkill on a stretch of highway in Oregon. (laughs) Right. And therefore, the next Tuesday after a heavy rain in Wyoming is the best day to like buy. You know what I mean? Like they they find these things that to us, it's like, oh, those things are completely arbitrary. They don't actually link. But there might actually be a pattern there that it's, it's detecting. I don't think we've gotten there yet, but I think that's where that that singularity happens and it's like we won't realize that it's got there it'll just be like oh wow this computer keeps getting all kinds of like things right (laughs) and it's like well actually it just found the cheat code and now you just turn into like 
a real life game genie. Totally, dude. It's basically an alchemical wedding where the rational and the irrational become one. I never thought about it that way, but it seems like (laughs) that's kind of what's going on there. So they're calling the people shells. This guy's name who is uh, in charge of the shell operation is Pagan. So there's that. Pagan's a character from the comics, I recall. I think Pagan impersonated Elektra, if that matters ever, in the comics. I doubt that Elektra will come up in this because she doesn't exist in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the guy that they're bringing a shell to, he's impersonating one of these Americans against Russia. So that's a plot point. Then we fast forward to meeting Gravik. Gravik. <laughs> and uh, basically Pagan's telling him he is the cause. And Gravik says, no, the cause is to find our home or to uh, take this, take Earth as their home. Then we fast forward a little further and uh, here's a scene where we see Gaia out and about in town. Why I grab screenshots here is because you see this bull in the back left here behind her. Uh-huh. So there's a bull there. And then two more shots. I only have screenshots of two of the times, but there's basically three times we see Gaia in front of a bull symbol. To me, that's underpinning or foreshadowing that she's going to be sacrificed. I don't recognize this particular scene, but is that like uh like meat he's got slung over his shoulder there? Probably. I think that this is a sacrifice symbolism though. Because you know, spoiler alert <laughs> later on. And with the, the old system of priestcraft, the you know, you pretty much needed a, a sacrificial bull to do anything. Especially that was the old tax system, man. Because uh, you would you would bring your sacrifice to the priests and then the priests would divvy it up amongst themselves. And then they would take little bits of penance. And um, like, like uh, when they would say they would go in like sacrifices to the fire. Well, the priests were eating that barbecue after the sacrifice. It wasn't like they just throw it into the fire and then it's gone and it's, you know, it's ash. Like you were making this sacrifice as in like, Hey priests, keep doing your thing. You guys are doing a good thing. Here's like a quarter of a goat or whatever. And she was on her way, I think, in this scene to go meet the bullshit art dealer. (laughs) And yeah, here he is. So this is a good reveal, actually. This guy is up front. He's an art dealer with terrible art, just atrociously god awful. And as is classic intelligence agency modus operandi, the art dealer is actually a front for contraband items and money, money laundering and God knows what else weapons. That's the whole art. Isn't that like the whole Hunter Biden narrative? The whole art word world narrative. Yeah. Yeah. But we, here we are in Russia. So this is <laughs> not enough Hunter crack. Biden. There's not enough crack <laughs> here though. Uh, then Fury shows up to uh, interrogate this guy. And this is where we finally get a good Samuel L. Jackson waving a gun and threatening somebody. 
as we wanted the whole time. It's really the only thing we wanted. Do you see the head, the female head to the left of him with the curly hair, like the Buddhic hairstyle? It's the head of wisdom. We're still seeing that pop up. Could even even be like a Gorgon if you wanted to really read into it. Could be. <laughs> I thought this was funny. He's sitting in a chair and this guy's like, that chair belonged to Louis the Fort the Fifteenth. It's priceless. So I found a painting with Louis the Fourteenth and a chair. And it's him as a young boy being picked up by Tsar Peter the Great of Russia. And the funny thing about the the legend of Peter the Great coming to France and in, instructing the young king, instructing, that there's a lot of like embracing and kissing and you know, lifting up the young boy before you take him on horseback rides and whatever, hunt, hunt, going on hunts. <laughs> I'm going to show you how to be a real man. <laughs> Looks like a Joe Pesky caveman. It's good. Uh, and then, you know, cl- classic power move. Fury's like, I'm going to get the name wrong <laughs> intentionally. It's like, you got any more of these comfortable ass Louis the 14th chairs, even though it was Louis the 15th, but Louis the 14th, he's the famous one. Louis the 14th is the sun King. Classic. Here he is portrayed as Jupiter. And there he is portrayed, portrayed as a young child. Really looks like a girl, <laughs> Louis the Fourteenth. You know, if the the transpocalypse has been going on for a long time, <laughs> at least four hundred years, apparently. Maybe a homunculus. Isn't uh, one of those Louis is the one that uh, Saint Louis is named after? Probably the Sun King. Yeah, and uh, and I think that's going to also kind of hail back to that Mississippi thing. Oh, it's uh, Louis the Ninth, apparently. Oh, okay. Okay. Thought we had a Mississippi Louis, uh, St. Louis tie-in. Well, you know, it's all, it's in the line of Louis. They're all related, right? I also have to just call bullshit really quick because there's no chance that there's a single chair made in the time of King Louis the 14th or any King Louis that would be as comfortable as like a nice modern, I don't want to say lazy boy. Cause they're kind of like garbage now, but you know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's not going to be a comfortable ass chair. Come on. Well, there's come no on, way. No, it's like, for some reason they want us thinking about Louis the 14th or the 15th. I think it might be because of this Russia, France connection and the, in that era, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Um, you know, no, that's a very good point. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche had like this brilliant one paragraph that he wrote that was talking about like, if I was Germany and I knew that um, uh, the my two great, my, one of my biggest fears would be France and Russia getting along, then I would spend all of my energy making sure that France and Russia be, uh, remain enemies forever. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think they're kind of playing on these old political allegiances that are uh, getting drummed up in modern day but, uh, events. But, you know, this guy kind of makes me think of the Sam Bankman-Friedman or whatever scandal. 
the the haircut. He's got a little like a uh, oh, Mr. Cotter thing going on too. If you want to play that, right? Yeah, that's kind of what came to mind a little bit with this guy. Nice. Now there's we won't be covering in as close detail the latter parts of this episode unless you guys have stuff to bring up specifically because in the second half it's more action less overt symbolism or noticeable symbolism yeah and we you know we've been at it for a while (laughs) but he does we're, we're skipping over a scene where talos meets with gaia she's got the bomb somebody set up us the bomb and he's like, yo, the guy you're working for killed your mom. Your mom's dead. And so she's kind of shocked and saddened. Now she's primed to be a double-double agent in the f- following episodes. And I found it interesting, though, that then Fury meets with Maria Hill in the tavern. He buys a round of vodka, speaking in Russian. He says that that's what, basically something along the lines of, that's how intelligence agents have been keeping cold wars from going hot is by knowing who to buy a drink for. I don't understand that, but (laughs) Maria Hill is a character we haven't talked about much. She's not that, not that big of a character at any point in the Marvel universe. She's just always kind of like a prop character. She's also an Ultimate Comics character, so her version in the comic books is related to the version of Nick Fury that is based on Sam Jackson. I'm sure that the Marvel is stoked to get Samuel L. Jackson to play the character that they drew to look like him in the in the <laughs> comics before. So what Maria Hill as a name to me that invokes you know, she's created, I'll just say, she was created by a comics artist, in, including this version of Fury, the Sam Jackson version of Fury, created by a comic book uh, writer named Brian Michael Bendis. He was the architect of the whole Marvel Ultimate Universe. He is also a, you know, a J. So there's likely some Kabbalism intentionally. Not that, you know, it's not outside of the realm of possibility. Not Neither good nor bad, just pointing it out. Uh, Maria Hill well if we're dealing with Fury being a savior archetype Maria Mary is in that name is important Hill is where you would have the church in the old the old old religion the top of the hill would usually be where the circle or the kirke was at so that's in the mix her name has some importance <laughs> yeah He says, if you drop the M, her name is Hill of Ares. (laughs) Yeah, interesting. Aria Hill. Areopagus is the word for the Hill of Ares. That's a Roman thing. So (laughs) your halo is spinning, spinning, Gabriel. (laughs) But I find it interesting. They have uh, a tradition, apparently, Fury and Maria, of playing of telling the truth to each other while playing chess. She's the white, he's the black. Get it? Right. It, they do. They did. A, there's like a whole uh, rapid fire of like strange kind of race baity stuff going on right here. Like, uh, you know, 
uh, Fury, he orders bourbon and the Russian guy takes the vodka, you know? So Fury's got the brown and the Russian guy's got the clear. Fury drinks out of a brown bottle and she's got a green bottle. Nice. But she's he, kinda, ordered, he ordered a Schlitz 42, I think. <laughs> yes. And then, there, yeah, and then the fact that she's playing the white, uh, the white pieces and he's the black pieces. Oh, and I think the line that he says is something like, that's how we kept the Cold War from going hot was, I think he says something like spooks like me buying drinks. And she's like, yeah, you can't say spooks like that. And he's like, no, no, you can't say spooks. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's like all this. Is there uh, something racial about spook? There oh, is. Yeah. yeah. I did not know that. Oh, like I derogatory, derogatory term. Yes. In, but it I also think, means like a, a, obviously like an undercover CIA agent or something, right? And I think the I think it's taken on more. Oh, I think whoa, it means. Whoa! I think it, it means spy today more than it, it does. It, I think it lost that old racial thing uh, over time. It, it's lost that connotation because. When I hear spook, I strictly think of spy. I do not think of it. The CIA took that word back. <laughs> they totally, they reappropriated it. Yes. Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? And then. Oh, and, whoa. Spooky. I know. See, there's so many things that like the kids aren't going to learn and they're just going to stumble into. Like uh, I learned from my buddy who was from uh, Alabama. He's from the South. You know, I learned a lot of things from him. Like I had a cat that we named her, we named the cat Mammy. And I was like, yeah, my cat's name was Mammy. Cause she had like a, you know, multiple batches of kitties one after the other. And he's like, no man, you can't be saying Mammy. I'm like, why can, what's wrong with Mammy? That's my cat's name. And he's like, that's no, what got, that's what got Aunt Jemima fired, bro. Yeah, dude. He's like, you can't say that. And every time I said it, he was like, like coughing on his own on his own lung he's like no dude shut up you stop saying it <laughs> yeah there's a lot of terms like that that like kind of mean something to one t- one side of the country and the whole other thing to the other side of the country it's crazy man i had i just had no idea i thought spooky was a halloween word <laughs> <laughs> I was just looking into it a little bit, and apparently this might go back to World War II. So back into the World Wars mix Mm -hmm. that the Tuskegee black athletes enlisted to the Air Force deployed in Europe were called the Spookwaff. Not not officially, but like that was a derogatory thing. Huh. Yeah, the, the the German version of the derogatory version. Because <laughs> just like just like everything else in World War II, the Germans were just copying American racism. They didn't even make that up on their own. They weren't even creative <laughs> enough. All they are is like the industrious culture that takes someone else's idea and just we're like we're gonna crank that out assembly mode style, you know. But like. The ingenuity of of racism and eugenics came right here, homegrown in America. <laughs> so uh, we're sco- scooting forward here, and the next thing that's happening is the big the big day is coming of the you know 
the plot. They're meeting, or they're going to blow up a Vos Soy Edinenia Square. <laughs> this looks CGI too, the face. Yeah, I did. I, I bumped cool. up the exposure maybe a little too far. Because for some reason, when I screen capture off of on my computer, things are like way darker than they should be. So eh, I have to bump it up in Photoshop. I wonder but about that, that word in Russian. Yeah. Means yeah. reunification. Hmm. I don't think that that's a real place. Okay. Hmm. It's a but fictional it is, location. Yeah. Very alchemical though. Then we see in this scene, we see the, you know, a couple of characters come back, like the lady who gives him the dirty look. It turns out that's a scroll. He's trailing one scroll trying to find, you know, trying to find who's got who has the bomb. And we see the the gay ball again. <laughs> ball child. <laughs> it says Bello in white letters behind her head. Where? Hmm. Where is that PK? I missed that. Bello is pro- possibly white. You know, have you heard of like Belarus? Belarus okay. was Belarusia. It meant white Russia. Hmm. It's where the dude is from. Hmm. Huh. Drinking white Russians. Anyway. <laughs> but um. <laughs> but this scene's mostly just action you know he's trailing the scroll through the crowd he shape-shifting to different people they blow it up here's your false flag yeah. bombing event false flag bombing you know one one thing i noticed right before the uh the the bomb goes off the it seems intentional again uh like we can't we can't really say that they're doing this on purpose but it seems intentional to me. The, uh, the camera work is actually uh, kind of setting up the viewer for uh, cognitive dissonance. Um, for example, there's like two characters on uh, doing, they're like jumping on a teeter totter, you know, like the old teeter totter gymnastic tri- tricks. And they just, the camera just happens to pan over the two acrobats as the one guy just launched off the screen but he never comes back down he never comes back down and then the camera cuts to another you know angle and it just seems to me that they're intentionally generating these unrealistic illogical sequences uh for the onlooker before the actual action is happening so it's, i just saw a lot of like very subtle programming going on in the background where it's like we're being um, almost entrained to accept things that are are illogical, uh, slowly but surely. Does that make sense? Yeah, you, you can't, know, you it can't applies to all kinds of false flags. Where if you scrutinize the footage and the news coverage, you're seeing it, all kinds of problems with it. That's exactly it. Yes, it's as though it, yes, we're being yeah trained to expect to see what is un yeah what is cgi what's bullshit you know what i mean well, it started out with imagine a world where you can't trust information 
bright. Yeah, and we're, we're being. Tra- I think the training is to just disregard your senses and accept what you're told rather than what your senses show you. Yes, Hence, you know all of the rainbow, the rainbow ball. <laughs> senses don't support NASA cosmology at all. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I can't believe I failed to point out, but with the whole Ross wisdom weave, you know, Rus Ross. It's right there in the word Russia. My bad. Yeah. Left that out. Good call. The Russos. So then uh, Maria Hill gets capped by a scroll who looks like Fury. It's Gravik, actually. Disguised. Bum, bum, bum. And Finn. <laughs> then it's over. That's where it leaves off. Got to have a good cliffhanger. And you, you got that little Russian flag at her toe. Do you see that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she's even the same. She matches the color scheme of the flag. <laughs> she they killed St. Maria. Those dirty Ruskies. Yeah. Trippy. Trippy, trippy. So what do you guys think? You want to you want to. uh let us know in the chat, and then you, you two, I want to know. Do you guys want to continue this series? Do you want to decode further episodes? Mm. <laughs> I'm down to decode. I, I've seen episodes two and three, and uh, it doesn't necessarily pick up the pace a whole lot. There's lots of talking and conversation. I, I agree. I think if we continued <laughs> this, I kind of want to wait to see where it goes in episode four with the Super Scrolls. Yeah, yeah. But episode three is a pretty short one. So I kind of think if we continued this, we might be able to do like cram uh, a quick stream in on and put two and three together. Yeah. The first episode is always going to have a lot of groundwork to cover off. Mm -hmm. And then we can kind of just pick up in a part two. PK claims episode three is juicy. You know, episode two introduces the interracial marriage. That's interesting. Interspecies marriage. <laughs> oh, right, right. You're right. So, yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally, I agree with Thomas. I think it got uh, kind of, they're slowing down the pace. It seems like they're going to spread things as thin as they can. So maybe uh, we should stack them up as much as possible. Yeah. You know, I felt that way about the slowness from the beginning. But when mm-hmm. I went back over this with a more fine tooth comb, there was a lot of stuff hiding in the background, probably even more than I missed. But, you know, like those decks of solitaire cards, the bull behind Gaia, the 193, the <laughs> all the head and wisdom symbolism continually repeating mm-hmm. it over and over again. So I and think that we a- ought to. Dude, we gotta we gotta get back together and do something. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I wanted to because last time we I talked to you, uh, Chance, about this series, and I think you mentioned you've never seen Punisher Warzone, right? Mm-mm. I would love to suggest that, not because I even think it's a cult. I hope it is. I hope that we could pick it apart, but it is truly one of the more comic booky Marvel movies, and it's definitely not MCU but it's a Marvel movie. So I don't know if it fits into the same theme, but that could be a, a fun one to, to book apart. 
Okay. Well, uh, uh, we'll I, I guarantee again. no one's demystified Punisher Warzone. So <laughs> maybe we could do that on, uh, you know, maybe Thomas can run that show. I'm down, bro. Let's let's definitely do that. We've been doing some movie decodes. We could do a Disney comic stuff. Decode. I mean, we're de- technically you're on brand right now with all your Disney stuff you've been doing. This is technically Disney owned property that we're decoding today. It, I mean, it, it builds into my growing theory and I won't go on too much of it, but that Disney's um, they found the formula that works. Their algorithm that they found out works is that you sit a kid down in front of this fantastic world. You kill their parents through proxy, right? They're watching the movie and Simba's dad dies or they get kidnapped or whatever. Whatever happens is you separate the child from all of the sense of authority figures. And then you plop in this trademarked intellectual property character. And you're like, here's the new thing that you can trust. Here's the new dad. Here's your new mom. Here's your new authority figure. And then that becomes, you know, like the Happy Meal toy. They have to have it because that Happy Meal toy has more authority than you do as a parent. Because when you sat your kid down, Disney killed you and replaced you with, you know, this little thing. And I feel that Disney purchasing Marvel and kind of doing the same thing with Marvel. It's kind of the exact same thing. But to me, Marvel uh, superheroes is the closest thing that we have to, you know, like pagan gods again. This is like children and, and you know, um, adults worshiping these, you know, uber mensches. Um, and that's kind of like this new wave of, you know, multi-god paganism. So by Disney owning that, and then also owning all these old grim fairy tales and folklore, they own all the old mythology and they own all the new mythology. Like there's nothing in between that's left that Disney doesn't say I own that. So I don't know. I, I feel like they're really like they're winning the culture war if we're playing um, civilization, right? <laughs> <laughs> well put, very well put. Did uh, did I hear there was something about George Lucas was uh, had a chance to get his hands back on his own property again? I think they are removing some of the Star Wars rides from the Disney parks too. I don't know if that if that's directly related to that or not. And it, and George Lucas is kind of coming back on the scene, right? Is that is that the rumors? I don't fucking care about Star Wars, so. <laughs> I fucking couldn't care less, dude. Yeah, I heard that Lu- Lucas had a chance to buy his own stuff back. Huh. I think it'd be it'd be interesting to see them try to backtrack from all the shit that they've that they've dug. It'll be really interesting just to see if they try to backtrack. Well, I still think Han shot first, and I think it's bullshit that they even edited that theatrical re-release. It changes. <laughs> the entire premise of the whole fucking series. The Han shot first theory. Han sh- it, there's not a theory. It's, it's true. It really happened. And uh-huh. then they changed history. It was the ultimate false flag. The ultimate Mandelu. <laughs> <laughs> cool guys. Well, we'll wrap it up. You, uh, you gentlemen want to give any promotions to your own channels or works you got happening at the moment. You go, Gabe. Uh, let's see. I think, uh, something's coming out pretty soon on the King of Cups, uh, with the show I did with Chris a while back on, uh, nostalgia, uh, and how everything is kind of, uh, gearing the minds of the masses back to like the turn of the age from the eighties to the nineties, like we were talking about tonight, uh, and thereby 
putting us in a mindset for another, you know, 9-11 ritual of whatever sort. So, yeah, that one's probably going to pop up pretty soon. Keep an eye on up for that. And uh, other than that, I don't think I'm doing very much. I've been uh, on hiatus for the past month. I'll probably be on hiatus for a couple more weeks. I got my kiddo with me. Uh, but, yeah, after that, we'll be back in the saddle uh, over on the one-on-one show, Rising from the Ashes with uh, Danunaki Dan and uh, Miriam and Indy and uh, our boy Homie Romy. Uh, and then, yeah, catch me over with uh, one-on-one and Weaving Spider's Webs. There's all kinds of hours and hours over there. And Gabe and I, a couple weeks ago, were brainstorming a comic book that he might be appearing in. I'm not going to give too much more away, but it's going to be crazy. Imagine Gabe as, like, the ruler of a comic book surreal psychedelic dimension. So <laughs> you'll you'll see that pretty soon. And then uh, speaking of comics, I do have a couple did that I, take, I would love. Did he take kingship by dance fighting? <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of time to work that in, man. Uh, but but uh, here's my my MK Ultra pamphlet. If anyone's not already familiar, this is my my go to. This is the one that I suggest people check out the first. It's a pamphlet that breaks down the entire history of the MK Ultra program from Bluebird to Artichoke to Derby Hat to anything you can imagine. It's got names, dates, and uh, uh, court cases cited. And then this one is brand new that I just released with Juan. This is the homunculus owner's manual. And, and this one shows you the complete history of alchemical, spiritual, um, magical, uh, different types of homunculi, what you can do with them, um, all sorts of different concepts. This one right here is uh, the, the Crowleyan homunculi that he describes <laughs> in Moonchild. Uh, this is the, the most definitive and illustrated book cool. on homunculi I think that's ever been produced so far, at least in this century which is pretty cool. And then <laughs> the other, uh, the other podcast that I've been doing, just a quick shout out. If you want to follow some other like really cool people, uh, I do the occult book club with Juan from the one-on-one podcast. It's a little bit irregular, but if you just go to occultbookclub.com, it'll show you a bunch of episodes that Gabe has also been involved in. I do reality czars with uh, Nate. I just posted an interview we had with Tommy Chong today. So if you check out my paranoid American YouTube, you can see that I do a series called Occult Disney that you can also find like on my the YouTube. The Tommy Chong, the Tommy Chong. Yeah, we talked to him last Friday about Bigfoot, MK Ultra, channeling spirits. Uh, it was wild, man. I I can't wait to do more on that one. And nice. then what else? I do Sync Tank with Andre Zertis on Tuesdays, and uh, a, a bunch of my other friends uh, that do all kinds of awesome creative endeavors. And then finally. I'm starting another one on Saturdays. I work with Tommy Truthful of Truth Mafia TV, and we do Conspiracy Cinema Saturdays, where we watch pretty much like the newest movies coming out, and we sort of decode them like we do here, although it goes it goes way off the rails into the gematria. Like so I got to get you on one of those, Gabe. Yeah. You, you too, Chance. Sweet, man. Uh, so we also got Thomas coming up on a Vibrant a week from this Wednesday. So not the next Wednesday, but the one after that, we've got a great show coming up there and hoping to see Gabe join me on the vibrant this Wednesday. <laughs> it's going to be good. And all right, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Thanks everyone for going on this two hour and 50 minute ride covering a show. That's only about 45 minutes. <laughs> 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 long. 
I hope you guys had fun. The demystifiers will return. Lots of options what we could do. So we'll see what it is. But thanks for being here. Love y'all. Love you guys. Good night. Big love, everyone.